So, okay, before we uh, get to your guys' questions, we'll answer all the questions, hopefully, <laughs> to the best of my ability, answer all the questions you guys have brought. I mean, some of the hardest questions I've I've gotten, certainly as a cluster, have come from your guys' group. But tell us, like, introduce yourselves, if you guys would, both for me and for the people who watch the video later. Uh, Matt, Dave, who are you guys? And what started all this? What's your Reddit group? What is all that? Yeah, um, so my name is Matt. Um, on the subreddit, I am Frail Rain. Um, I have been on Reddit for, I don't know, a decade at this point. And at a certain point, I got into moderating um, just for like a dumb little mobile game for your phone. And I was like, hey, I, I'm pretty good at moderating. Like, let's see if there's any other Reddits that need help. Uh, and the Bible just happened to put up a an ad saying, hey, we need some moderators. And I was like, I like the Bible. And moderating. I think that would be a good fit. And um, I've been there for, geez, I think three years now. And it's just been awesome to be able to help make a community where um, people can go and just have open and honest discussions about the Bible. And they're not worried about facing maybe repercussions for asking questions that are might seem dumb to them or they think that people are going to, like, you know, push back on. So right. to have just kind of a free exchange of ideas. Uh, so that's kind of what got me in there and what I have, the vision I have for the Bible subreddit. Right on. Right on. How about you, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. So I think it was, it was Matt who invited me to be a moderator or at least put a post in, in the subreddit asking for folks to help, help with the moderating duties. And I volunteered and was chosen. And that you said three years, Matt, it feels like it's been longer than that, but um, maybe it's, it's been, yeah, a couple of years, and um, it, it was um, I, I, um, I, I I do a bunch of youth work um, right now, so it's it's a good way to to stay engaged with what I'm, I'm a little older than Matt, but what what the kids are are doing these days and, and what they're asking because there's some really hard questions that come at us on that subreddit, and um, you know as moderators we don't answer all of them by any means. Uh, we we're just there to keep the the, the non-biblical stuff out to, to the for the most part but oh and by the way I'm, I'm known as rumor spies there so um officially my name is dave right on right on so um <clears throat> yeah what, what i found is that uh the uh the internet is really good at asking questions <laughs> and, uh, and it's important yes. to have good and thoughtful answers to those questions i know it's important to me to try to have that and so you guys have actually what you did was you asked your reddit your subreddit, I should say, I'm, I'm using the wrong term because I don't really use Reddit. <laughs> so you asked your, your subreddit uh, to give questions to me and then you compile those into what are kind of 20 questions, but really it's more than that. And so yeah. we're going to break those down. Uh, we'll go through those. If, if we post this video as, an, as one giant video, then I'll put timestamps uh, or I might end up breaking it up. I don't really know what the plan is yet. Either way, you guys will have access to it. So, uh, so why don't you just take over the interview? You guys can... Uh, do it as you like. Cool. Um, so, Dave, do you want to just alternate questions? Sure. By the way, I, I don't have the questions in front of me, so that's how prepared we are. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I've got them up in front of me, so uh, I'll uh, I'll give you a little buffer. Um, so the first question comes from user Frail Rain. Oh, I like that guy. Um, and he says, "Hey, Mike, thanks so much for having this on this Q and A and uh, doing this with us." Um, I had a question. What are your thoughts on the works of Michael Heiser as he talks about the unseen realm and mythic beings like giants and other gods? 
Okay, so I, I this is going to be one of the questions I can't give a, a thorough answer to, but that's because I haven't thoroughly gone through Dr. Heiser's work. But I will say a few things, just so you're asking me what my opinion is. I'm not telling you what you have to think, but here's my thoughts. I'm somewhat familiar with Dr. Heiser's work. I, I've, I do occasionally listen to his podcast, The Naked Bible Podcast, and I like him. I, th- I think he's actually an incredibly good teacher. Uh, he breaks things down that are... It's scholarly information, information that scholars will talk about, but he breaks it down in a way that normal people can get and understand and grasp. And that is like a great skill that a lot of scholars lack, which is fine. Maybe that's not their calling. I'm just grateful that he does that well. Um, I find it super interesting. Basically, if something in the Bible is strange or weird, then he's you know going to talk about it. <laughs> he's going to do a podcast on it. Um, yeah. Or if you think it's not weird, he's going to make it weird. But um, but the part of the core of what Dr. Heiser does is his whole div- what he calls the divine council worldview. And I'm going to say I partly agree. Uh, I, I go with him partway down the road. When he descri- describes what he thinks of Elohim, he describes Elohim as an entity that's part of a, the disembodied spiritual world. That to me is, is is yeah, I agree. Those are his words I'm quoting now. And, um, yep. and I would agree with that. And I'd say, yeah, well, Samuel, in a passage we'll talk about later, he's actually called an Elohim because he's disembodied. And this is, a, you know, he, he's dead and he's brought back. His spirit's brought back for discussion. And so he's called an Elohim. Well, anything that didn't have a body. Um, so that sort of thing, I, I kind of in general agree with. But when he connects it to, say, Psalm 82, personally, I'm, I'm disinclined to agree. I, I go, yeah, I don't think Psalm 82 is about that. I think it is about the traditional view of it's about kings. It's about rulers of men. Um, and they're being called El, uh, Elohim or gods in a uh, kind of a mocking sense, but also because those with authority have authority because they're getting it ultimately from God. God is the source of all authority. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of like, ha- I go halfway down the road with Dr. Heiser and I really appreciate his content and the rest of the way. I'm personally not quite there. I think a lot of people get confused by his stuff. Um, like say for instance, let's take, let's apply this, all this stuff that just sounds like, you know, gobbledygook to some people what I've just said so far, <laughs> but um, <laughs> applied to like say Zeus, Zeus, according to Dr. Heiser, as I understand him, uh, Zeus is a real entity that there is a real entity, a spirit being, an Elohim behind Zeus, right? Except his name's probably not really Zeus. The attributes that they say Zeus has, he doesn't really have. The stories about Zeus aren't really true about him. So you could say Zeus doesn't really exist, but there's an entity behind Zeus inspiring that. Well, that to me is consistent with what I've always thought. When Paul says like, those who sacrifice to idols are sacrificing to demons, that's consistent with what, personally, I've, I've always believed there. Um, the uh, the thing is, basically, Heiser's going to say gods are um, the Elohim that they exist, but they refer to the in the plural this lesser being. They're not like it's not like there's God and there's lots of other equal gods. No, 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 no. They're, he says Yahweh is species unique, and it gets really complicated real quick. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, like you're asking my overall thoughts on him. Yeah, really valuable content. I go like halfway down the road with him on most things. When he talks, say, about the Nephilim, that was in your question here, um, or the giants, um, mm-hmm. I actually tend to agree that this is not, these. the Nephilim are probably not humans, uh, or the result of humans, godly, you know, offspring of Seth, sleeping with ungodly women. That's I don't think that's the accurate view. I think Heiser's closer to it. But where me and him differ, this is inside baseball for those who read Heiser, um, is I probably wouldn't lean personally and he's more credentialed than me, so don't. I'm not acting like I'm his uh, scholarly equal or something. Just my opinion. He would lean more heavily on, say, intertestamental literature than I would, as being the interpretive grid for the Old Testament. 
So there's stuff that was written that's not in the Bible that's kind of written between the Testaments. And they have a certain understanding of things like Genesis or demons or other stuff like that. And he would lean more heavily on them as the filter for how you understand things in the Old Testament. That's my perception of things, but I've only made it partway through his book. I've listened to him talk about various topics, and I might revise my opinion about that stuff here. Awesome. I have a friend who's really into Michael Heiser, and I haven't known how to have kind of those conversations with him. So. Yeah, a, just curious. I've, like, where, where do the conversations go when 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 he your friend brings up uh, brings him up? He almost he's he's very much a Christian, and as far as I can tell, he almost blanket agrees with Michael Heiser. Um, and I don't really have a lot of other people who even know who Michael Heiser is. Yeah. So this was just kind of a uh, a nice little. I, I wanted to hear just from somebody who I I trust as a source of biblical truth uh, to hear what you had to say, Mike and. Yeah. You know, yeah, like you won't Heiser, be my only source, but you're, I'd say you're a good like, one for me. Yeah. He, he talks about, say, uh, his understanding of what it means to be made in the image of God. I actually don't yep. agree with that. He has the where imagers is kind of like a role that we have or a job we have. It's not so much in our nature. It's a task we're called to perform. I don't agree with that. I think that that's uh, in, incorrect. You know, so there, he has views on so many things that it's hard to just give a blanket answer because probably more often than not, I'm agreeing with him. <laughs> But not sometimes on the things that become core to his unique contribution, which is right. seeing the divine counsel. I might see it in 10% of the places he sees it or something like that. Yeah. Awesome. Interesting. All right. Second question. Hey, Mike, any conclusions on once saved, always saved? This is coming from Follow Christ. Yes. Um, not yet, but I'll, I'll, I'll say this. In my <laughs> Hebrew study, that I'm about to start. After I finish the Gospel of Mark, I'm going to go verse by verse, verse by verse through the entire book of Hebrews. During that, I'm going to tackle the once saved, always saved question. And I'm the reason why I'm on the fence, though, let me explain this, um, and why I think maybe others should consider being on the fence, <laughs> at least until they've studied it carefully, is that um, I wanted to be once saved, always saved. Like, this is, this is the tradition. This is the people I'm surrounded with that I love and that I fellowship with. They're generally once saved, always saved. But there's these passages in scripture that I don't know how to reconcile with that view, hmm. meaning that it's implying, I mean, there's, there's warnings that seem like they're warnings that you could really actually fall away. And the way it's worded, it, some of them you can, you can get around pretty easily. You go, all context shows me this isn't what it's about. But there's others where it's like, no, man, he's really kind of saying to them that they're going to fall away from the living God if they don't continue to believe, implying that that's a real possibility. Well, Hebrews is like one of the places where these warnings like happen the most. So when I study Hebrews, I'll go through this. Um, if, if you forced me right now to just give you an answer, right? Like my, my unfinished research on the topic, I would say um, I'm inclined, slightly lean towards thinking one can apostatize or leave the faith. Like they, they choose to reject Christ. They actually reject him. It's not that they sinned their way out of the faith, but they left belief in Jesus, left trust in Christ behind. They've apostatized. So this is this is to say that the thing that saves me is Jesus when I believe in him. And if I stop believing in him, I reject his salvation. Um, I, would, I would lean towards that as at least being a possibility. Um, but here's where it gets into a little bit of semantics. Let's say that you take an example. You're like, I got a buddy. His name's Fred. Fred was like, he loved God, he was serving, and now he's like a total atheist and he totally hates Christianity and he's got a YouTube channel to tell everybody about it. And um, 
And then here we are going, was Fred really saved? And I'm like, this is kind of a rude question towards Fred. And all he really hears, a lot of times I've talked to atheists or say just a non, someone who's not a Christian anymore. What they really hear is you're asking, do I believe that you were sincere? And so we're not really asking about were they positionally saved in Christ. We're asking, were they sincere? And if they hear that, us saying, you weren't sincere, you weren't really saved, you weren't sincere. This is just an insult in a, on a personal level. And I never go down that road. I never challenge people's sincerity. I never challenge the genuineness of the statements they made about Christ or the genuineness of the experiences that they um, say they had. I, I just don't go down that road. I go, look, this is this is not an area I'm going to argue with you on. Um, on the other hand, I will tell an, say an atheist along this regard that an atheist doesn't believe they were ever saved. And I'm not saying I don't, I'm saying he can't, right? Or she can't because they don't think anybody's saved. Nobody's filled with the spirit. Nobody's redeemed in Christ. Nobody has a relationship with God because there is no such thing. So in a sense, they think all Christians are currently faking on some level, whether they're aware of it or not, and that they were too in the past. But I've tried to, I've tried to breach. I thought this will be a fruitful thing to discuss with an atheist because then when they go back and they go, man, no, that was real. I had a real thing happen back then. It'll help them realize their atheism is inconsistent with that. But instead, they just got offended and mad at me when I did that. So I'm not really sure. <laughs> I'm not really sure how fruitful it is to bring up the genuineness of somebody's experiences at all. Um, but maybe I can cover this stuff better in the future. Yeah, I I have grown up in a well, I didn't grow up in a church. I started going to a church later in my teenage years, and the what you said more towards uh, somebody can apostatize and reject, and then they would say that I actually I have not had faith, um, like I never could have been saved because there is no salvation to have. I find in my life that is the the predominant view, um, and I've had those conversations and Mike, for me, they go one of two ways. They are either, they get mad <laughs> and they're like, Oh, you know, they don't want to go down that line or it's, well, my salvation back then was a gateway to the love I have now. Uh, and it very much goes more towards, um, a, a much more liberal theology and I'll, I'll hedge like you always hedge, not a liberal political ideology, right? Um, a, just a very like open free spirit. God is just, you know, Jesus is a God and he's a good guy probably right. kind of thing. Yeah. I might and call that like a, a loosey goosey theology, right? Like just yeah. kind of, I just kind of feel out my theology. This feels good. I'm going to make that yeah. claim. This feels good. I'll make that claim too. Yeah. Yeah. Those discussions are tough, but yeah, it doesn't seem like a lot of fruit in challenging people's sincerity of the, in the past. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm doing it based on my conclusions about a challenging theological question. It's just, I don't want to go there. Yeah. I feel like the question comes up quite a bit though, when it's, uh, it, it does come up when, when someone's passed away, but also, I mean, we get, we get a few questions here and there about suicide and, uh, you know, what does that indicate of, of someone and what does the Bible say about it? And then, you know, those are, those are hard conversations to have. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to give somebody, you know, sound biblical, teaching, but also comfort and, you know, and the loss of someone like that is challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a teaching on suicide if anybody's interested, but it's, it's to me, it's easier to hand somebody off to a teaching 
than it is to sometimes answer their questions directly because there's something about, Oh, it's a video I listen to or a a thing, a book I read versus it's a person telling me. And now I feel more confronted as they talk. And I also want to interrupt them. (laughs) And so sometimes I find that like a a resource like that, where you hand somebody a a video or a, a book or an article is sometimes a better way than just trying to conversationally walk through and then afterwards take them out to lunch and say, Hey, what'd you think? You know? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, so our next question is from user familiar ad four, three, seven, four. Um, and there's two parts to this question. The first one is how can Christians agree and respect each other when they have different denominations like Pentecostal Baptist Presbyterian. Um, and then the second would be, what if your family's divided on that? Because there's a specific doctrine that people tend to say is important while others don't accept it. All right. Um, <laughs> Okay, so this it's difficult to have a blanket answer to this because there are some doctrines that we should divide over. Not that we want division, but it's it's kind of like saying, um, let's say that you and me are brothers, or like the three of us are brothers, and we all believe different things. Okay, one of us is into baseball, the other one likes video games, the other one just likes gardening. Okay, who cares? Right, we can still get along just fine. But let's say that I we have a disagreement on something that's like a little more important, like... Um, uh, what sort of food is healthy versus unhealthy? And one of us is convinced that cheeseburgers are totally healthy. So we just eat cheeseburgers all the time, you know. Now it's like, okay, well, maybe we could disagree because you're only more affecting yourself and you're not really hurting others with this cheeseburger thing. So it's like, okay. But let's say we disagree on our parents. And I think that our 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 dad is like a horrible, evil man. And I and I I think he's just messed up and evil, and and you both think he's great. That every time we get together, I'm ripping on him. I'm saying things about him, things that aren't true. Like at some point you go, well, wait a minute, you know, I want to, I want to fellowship with my brother, but my love for my dad is a factor here. And, and, and there's a sense in which as Christians, I go, man, my love for God is, is, is number one in primary. And if the things that, that, are, that are being said by this other person who says they're Christian, if there are things that are being said about God, about Jesus, about God's truth are so offensive to the very nature and a person of God and the work of Christ then at some point I go, okay, hey, until you change your behavior, we can't really be brothers here in this. Um, So that being said, uh, let me say a few things that might help. Uh, You can't fix your family. You cannot fix your family. You can only fix your own attitude towards your family. So if you're looking for like, what do I say to my my family who who say they think infant baptism is really important and I don't? Like, how do I how do I make them see see it my way or perhaps make them see it's not essential? Well, you can't. All you can do is show them through your behavior that that you still want to fellowship with them. Um, you can fix your attitude, but you can't fix them. So the question is, like, uh, is this doctrine essential? Right. Is it like, who is God? Who's Jesus? Is it the death and resurrection of Christ? Is it salvation by faith, not works? Those are essentials. Or is it something that leads to uh, ongoing, grievous, serious sin? So I'm, I'm preaching sinful wickedness. Okay. Cause sin is another reason to consider disfellowship. Um, but if it's not essential, like the method of baptism, infant baptism, women in women leadership in leadership roles, uh, how communion is handled old earth versus young earth, the gifts of the spirit. These are all issues that matter, but they're very secondary in my opinion. I would fellowship. I mean, I would fellowship with a Calvinist, but I'm not a Calvinist. I wouldn't care. Like, I literally don't care. <laughs> yeah. In fact, I like talking to them about Calvinism. I have friends who are Calvinists, and they're like, why do you always want to talk about Calvinism? I was like, because you're a Calvinist. I just think it's interesting, you know? <laughs> and um, I'm not even combative. Like, I don't feel like I have to change their mind. 
um, if, if they said infant baptism, like uh, I got a friend who he's a pastor at a church and they have different pastors and they have different views of, of infant baptism. One of them, they believe in infant baptism, the other one doesn't. And in their church, they coexist in one fellowship. And, mm. and when they come to a passage where they disagree on, I think they just try to teach, yes, this is my view, but here's the variety of views on this. Um, it's a way of saying these are secondary issues. So most of the issues that divide denominations fundamentally, Pentecostal, Baptist, Presbyterian, uh, like say Presbyterians can have issues about infant baptism, issues about uh, church government, uh, Baptist, Pentecostal, they might have differences about the gifts of the spirit and their function. These are things we should not divide over. I'm not dividing on those issues and we shouldn't, but you can't fix them if they want to divide from you. You can only model grace and acceptance and when they push against your views you just go i hear you i hear you thanks for sharing and then you just move on because you don't you show them that you don't care if they change their mind and then maybe they'll reflect that back that's my counsel on that yeah it uh reminds me of a quote i heard when i was i think a teenager and stuck with me all this time i believe it's same friends of a, of a sissy uh and he said in the essentials unity in the non-essentials charity or in liberty and in all things charity amen and yeah. that's a great principle. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, another way we used to hear it when I was younger was major in the majors, minor in the minors. Don't make minor things yeah, major main thing, things. The main thing. Yeah. yeah. We've got a lot of different people that say it different ways, but it's there, there are some key things that we, we have to hold true to. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things that are minor. And sometimes, I mean, we, we, we get an argument, especially on Reddit, where, I mean, there's, there's a sense of anonymity there. So I'm not sure yeah. if you're aware of this, Mike, but, you know, um, Matt and I, this is the second time we've only seen each other, okay? So didn't wow. know who Matt was. Um, so that's one of the uh, you know, underlying principles of Reddit is you're, yeah. you're anonymous. So yeah. it's very easy to argue over, I'll say it, stupid things <laughs> when you're anonymous. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's yeah. Um, when, had, when you're face-to-face -face with somebody. We so had that, I had that happen one time. There was a guy who emailed. He was very mad at me. You could tell he was very angry in the message and he was like, I'm going to come to your service. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, great. You know, I've, I, I don't know what it is. I've, I've dealt with angry people in many, many, many occasions and like, I'm, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with yeah. that. Um, and so he came up and I just immediately greeted him with a big smile and a big handshake, told him I was happy to see him. And then I just listened. I just let him share yeah. what he thought. And now we're buddies. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, it's funny how you remove the anonymity. Right when you yes. become people, it makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Which I mean, that that comes up in our our moderation jobs. We we have some users that seem to be just diametrically opposed to one another. Yep. Um, and I'd love to think if we could get them, you know, working together and um, on something that they would find a common ground. But yeah, because they're fervent, and that's that's the thing. They're very fervent, and yeah. they're 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 majoring yeah. in the minors for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. That's but I, I believe Jesus is our major, man. So yeah. I like what Paul wrote. He says, endeavor or work hard to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Like it's a labor yeah. each Christian yeah. is called to. Yeah. yeah, that's what we should be fervent about. Your, your story, Mike, reminded me about uh, two months ago, I think now, I had removed somebody's post for being just overly combative. Yeah. And they messaged Messaged me their home address and invited me to come fight them. Oh, really? <laughs> and I was like, I thought, first of all, I made it. I got somebody on the internet to basically say, fight me IRL. Like, 
Yeah. That's top notch. But yeah. uh, good for you. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I wish I could fly out to Minnesota and have a lunch with a guy and just yeah. talk to him. But right. Dude, send him, send him a note, send him a mail him a note that just says, Hey man. And, exp- and just reaches out like with that, that olive branch, you know? Yeah. You know what? I'm going to do that. So you, you mentioned, um, baptism. Um, the next one comes from uh, long professional 23. How important is baptism? Uh, read the Bible daily, do lots of research to build my faith and understanding and have belief in our savior, Jesus. But I have a problem with some doctrines, uh, with the organized religions in my area and therefore have yet to find a post to pin my flag to in quotes, subsequently am not baptized. So the question is how important is it? Yeah. Okay. Let me, yeah. This is, a, I love this kind of question because it's, it's theological and practical, like it really hits real life, but it also has its its roots in the teaching of scripture. So um, as far as the importance of baptism, it's super, super important. I don't think baptism saves. I don't think, I think you're saved, even if you've not been physically baptized that, it, but, but you didn't ask how essential is it to my salvation? You asked how important it was. And so it's actually really, really important. Uh, it's kind of like saying like, how important is it that a married couple moves in together? Well, you're like, I mean, technically, you know, you can be married and not move in together, but that's kind of important. It's part of the establishment yeah. of a family. And baptism mm-hmm. is, you know, saying, hey, I'm baptized into Christ. I'm part of the body of Christ. I'm also part of a local fellowship of believers, but primarily I'm part of the global, universal, timeless body of Christ. Uh, I, I'm a Christian. Now, what if you can't find a church where you agree with all their teachings? And you're like, yeah, but I'm kind of, you feel like baptism is like signing on the bottom line of a doctrinal statement. And some of those doctrines you don't hold. So maybe like, yeah, uh, maybe the church is old earth or young earth, or maybe the church has just different views on things that you you don't agree with. My thought is don't worry about it. Baptism is not the signing of the doctrinal statement of faith of the entire church about every issue. Mm-hmm. Baptism is a statement of faith in Jesus, right? You're saying, I'm repenting of sin. I'm trusting in Jesus, who he is, right? He's God with us. He died and he rose again. That's it. That's it. So if if there is a church that's requiring, let's I'll just talk to the person who asked the question. If there's a church that's requiring you to uh, to affirm all of their teachings, like like what roles women can have in ministry, uh, what, uh, um, what age people can be baptized. Like if they want you to affirm all of their teachings in order to be baptized, then maybe look for a different church because you don't want to be insincere, right? You don't want to be like, look, I can't just pretend here. Most churches are not going to do that. They're just going to say, yeah, you're you're genuinely part of the body of Christ. So you could even talk to the pastor about this and say, look, I don't agree on everything, but I agree on this. Are you cool with that? Um, and then be part of it. And you don't have to go to that church till you die. <laughs> it's not... If, if baptism isn't the exact same thing as local church membership, baptism is about body of Christ belonging. And then it may be connected to local church membership, but you're not bound there forever. Yeah. It's not once baptized, always baptized. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> perhaps. Awesome. Uh, so our next question comes from Neanderthal Man 97 and he says, hi, Mike, I've listened to your channel for a long time now. I love the content. What is your view on uh, of the baptism of the spirit? I've noticed there are quite a few different views among believers on this. So I'm curious where you come down. Well, OK, so to explain this one, let me just give you guys the background of what I was raised with. OK, so I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor. I love Calvary Chapels. I mostly agree with the typical stuff from Calvary's, but I also ruffle feathers because 
I'm open about things I disagree on. Why? Because I think they're secondary. I think it's okay for us to disagree. One of the things that I was taught was that baptism in the spirit is like an event. Now, this may not even be what's typically mm -hmm. taught now currently in most Calvaries, but this is what was taught, you know, back in the 90s, late 90s when I first started going to Calvary. And um, I was taught that baptism in the spirit is an event that happens like after salvation. You get saved, you're filled with the spirit, like you're indwelt. But then baptism, that's a different term. And it refers to like sort of the overflowing of the spirit. So the, so there'd be an analogy, like a, here's a cup of water indwelt with the spirit where like pour the water and then overflowing, they'd pour the water and it would overflow the cup. So the water is the spirit, you're the cup. You're filled with the spirit, but when you're overflowing and it's gushing out of you, that's a result of the baptism of the spirit. Um, I would say I definitely don't think that's accurate as far as terminology goes. I think biblically speaking, baptism in the spirit is just salvation. You just get saved. It's the indwelling of the spirit. That's, that is baptism of the spirit. That's the biblical terminology. And I don't want to take Bible terms and use them in different ways because it will cause me to misinterpret scripture because I'm thinking that thing means something other than what it meant in context. So on the other hand, um, I do think that it is possible to like be filled with the spirit more than when you first got saved. And I think this can happen in a number of times in a person's life, but I wouldn't use the term baptism. I also wouldn't create a hierarchy where like some people are considered like next level Christians because they've got the baptism of the spirit. So let me walk you through some of this in scripture. Um, Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's because your initial baptism represents the fact that you have a relationship with the Father through the Son and you're filled with the Spirit, right? That's, that happens upon salvation. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, for by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's interesting. So if you're part of the body of Christ, you are baptized in the Spirit. Every, every believer is baptized in the Spirit. This is just salvation. This is the indwelling. <clears throat> he goes on in that same verse to say, we, all, we were all made to drink of, the, of one Spirit, meaning every, every believer has experienced this. But again, like subsequent fillings can happen. So John 20, verses 21 through 23, we have Jesus who, he, it says he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, so they receive the Spirit. Then in Acts 2, 4, they're filled with the Spirit and they speak in tongues. Then later on, Peter, he's the guy in Acts 2, 4, one of them who's filled with the Spirit. In Acts 4, 8, it actually says that Peter, and the Greek is consistent here, Peter's filled again with the Spirit, and now he preaches. So he was like a man who's had the Spirit, he, the fullness of the Spirit in a sense, but then he received more. This seems like it's related to doing certain tasks, certain moments, certain events. Does it mean that it comes with like, uh, warm fuzzies or what, I don't know. It, there's no rules there, right? God can do whatever he wants, uh, may or may not. It tends to be used to, um, the, the the increasing work of the spirit in my life is so that I can do increasing things for God, do something for the Lord. In Acts 19 though, here's a proof text that I've heard used to teach, I think the wrong way. So let me walk through this if, in case you guys have heard the same chapter used wrongly. So it says Acts, in, Acts 19 verses one through seven. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, in, a, in some Pentecostal circles, the question here is, did you get the extra baptism of the Spirit? Or are you just believers who don't have the baptism yet? That's not the context, though. They said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. 
They don't even know about the existence of the Holy Spirit. They're, they're, <clears throat> they have partial knowledge of Christ or of the gospel. Uh, and he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. See, Paul thinks it's weird that they don't know about the Holy Spirit because every believer is baptized with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so how do you not know? <laughs> so that we only know about John's baptism, like repent and believe in the one who comes after. So Paul responds and says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They were about 12 men in all. Now, the way the Pentecostals have sometimes used this passage, only some Pentecostals, ones I've been around, you know, um, is to say, this is where Paul finds believers in Jesus who are, they're believers, but they're lacking the power of the spirit. And Paul can like kind of sense it. He can kind of tell that they're missing some of the power of the spirit. So they need the baptism of the spirit. But actually, that's not the case. They're actually not believers in Jesus. They just knew that John said, repent and believe, you know, we, we kind of follow what John thought, but, but they were kind of confused. They don't have all the details. He preaches Jesus to them. Like they did not know about Jesus. They didn't know about the Holy Spirit. They weren't believers, really. They were kind of disciples of John with partial information. And then when they get saved, they get filled with the Spirit. So I think that this is, again, a confirmation that uh, baptism of the Spirit is a reference to salvation. And sometimes that comes to speaking in tongues. Sometimes it does not. As that, that's how it's exampled in scripture. And um, yeah, that, that's my view. Uh, hope that's clear. Yeah, I think so. Actually, I come from a uh, background where baptism in the spirit and speaking in tongues and these kind of outward uh, affirmations of the spirit being on you are a, were a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of prayer sessions were focused around, you know, God, what can I do? How can, you know, these are the people I care about, but, you know, spirit come on me so that I may speak in tongues, so that I may prophesy. Yeah. Uh, and I, I lean, I guess in my, as I'm getting over the hill and turning 30 this year. Um, <laughs> Grandpa. I, I more, more identify with uh, what you, what you say there, Mike, is that it's, you know, a, it's your salvation. It's talking about, um, it was, it's essential to, you know, I believe in Christ and that's the spirit coming on someone. So yeah, that's those, yeah. those environments are, they're very powerful when you're in those environments. Um, so, and, and I don't have much to add here. I've just, my, my experience is, <clears throat> you know, small country churches where I did most of my uh, being taught and raised. Uh, and, and not not Pentecostal, you know, we visited Pentecostal churches here and there, but um, so it was a foreign concept to me when when I saw anything that that approached that, and and you know, baptism of the spirit was was a euphemism for, um, you know, speaking in tongues and and things that are more of the Pentecostal gifts, um, and so it's uh, it, like you, Mike. I mean, I, I look at it as this is this is salvation. This is this is what it looks like when somebody's saved. Um, but you know, uh, I, I can be guilty at times of of not letting the Holy Spirit do what He needs to do at times too. It's 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 my upbringing. Upbringing. I'm fighting it. Yeah, working on it. <clears throat> I feel like I want I want to see more of the work of the Spirit, more prophecy, all those types of things. But 
there's a hesitancy that that's that's like I just don't want to fake anything. Like I only want the genuine work of the Spirit as the Spirit wills, as Scripture says, not as I will. Trying to force these things, but as He wills, and if that's now or or, or later or whenever His will be done. But it's the same Paul who said they were all baptized in First Corinthians. They're all baptized with the Spirit. He also goes on to say that all of them don't speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. <laughs> People don't usually bring yeah. those two verses together, but I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. But they do speak in tongues, though, right? What's that? <laughs> I said, but they do speak in tongues, right? Yeah, not they all do. speak in tongues. Just not all of them. Tongues, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So it's not like a, a proof, a proof, like, yeah. or it's not the proof. I should put yeah, it that way. Right. Yeah, it's not the only way to confirm that somebody has received the Spirit. Agreed. All right, next question from me, but um, it, it kind of highlights one of the most frequently asked questions we get is, um, which Bible should I read and where do I start reading? And um, so I, the, the other, you know, we have different answers, I know, but what, what are your opinions on depending on, you know, age, stage of life, life experience, native language, mindset, you know, whether you're depressed, anxious, proud, excited, um, broken, uh, prior religious affiliation, baggage, past offended or recent or upcoming major life events, you know, what, how do these things change the answer when it comes to, well, which version of all the Bibles that are out there should I read and where do I start? All right. Well, I'm going to give some advice that people usually don't listen to. I'm just going to acknowledge that right now. They go, where should I start? And you tell them and then they go, I'm starting a revelation. <laughs> you go, where should I start? And you tell them and they go, I'm starting in Genesis. That's what I'm doing. Um, so let me let me say, say this. Uh, education level is a big deal here, um, and and it's and reading comprehension is a big deal here. This is not a contest. It's rather finding what's going to help you the most, right? So, like for me, uh, I don't <clears throat> I don't understand, you know, complex engineering. So I would look for a very simple explanation, right? If I'm going to look for a book on engineering, I want engineering for dummies. Like I'm not offended by that. I'm like, that's the book for me. <laughs> like I want this simple. So if you're looking for an easier understanding of the scripture because it's new to you, I'm going to recommend the New Living Translation. I think if you're not even sure what translation to use, just use the New Living Translation. It's it's almost a paraphrase. Um, that's the point is it's easy to get what the scripture's saying. It's very easy to get the main point. You're not going to have all the nuance there for deep study, but you're going to get the main point more easily. So. Yeah, you're looking, when you look at the Bible, you're looking at literature that is thousands of years old and far removed from your own culture. Like, they're going through things that you're, you've never been through. They're in, they're in an environment you've never been in. And so it, you want to have as much help as you can. So I'm going to say for most people, hey, why not start with the, say, the New Living Translation if it's your first, you're looking at your first time reading the Bible. If you're interested in something more challenging, you're like, no, no, Mike, I'm really up for the challenge. Then I'd recommend, say, maybe the ESV or the NASV. B. Uh, the ESV is is more of like a more high, it, it actually aimed at a higher grade level. They actually aim translations at different grade levels of education. So ESV is higher grade level, but it's also more capable of being like nitpicked where you examine the, the way it's worded here and there because it, they're not just getting the main point, they're trying to get all the nuances in there as well. Um, so NASB is even maybe even a little more literal than the ESV. And some people even think it's wooden. Um, but as far as where to start, I say start in the Gospels. Okay. I know everybody's like, I'm going to start in Genesis. I'm going to start in Revelation. In fact, if you're going to start Revelation, I'm just laughing at you because you're not going to understand anything. Revelation has more allusions to the rest of the Bible, to the Old Testament than anybody else. So like yeah. you don't understand Revelation without a real sweeping knowledge of the Old Testament. 
So that's like the last, that's, that's the last thing you should read. But the early church, when they preached Jesus, they didn't go out. I mean, Paul didn't go out and say, uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? He went out when he went to Gentiles, went to people who didn't have the Jewish background. He started with Jesus. I think you should start with Jesus too. Start with the gospel. That's where the preaching of the early church began. They have four accounts of the life of Christ. Maybe there's an emphasis there that we've, we should have. Um, and so, yeah, start with the gospels. Uh, I, I recommend uh, perhaps Luke or John. Um, those might be a good good gospels to start with if you're not sure. Now, what about specific life situations? Okay, let's say you're depressed, First Peter. Let's say you're anxious, Philippians. Let's say you're proud, First John. If you're excited about newfound faith, these are some of the things you mentioned, Book of Acts. If you're broken, I think the Gospel of John. If you have baggage because of past offense, I have two recommendations. The Book of Psalms, just kind of start plodding through the Book of Psalms. There's so much of that in there for you. And then First Corinthians, especially if it's church hurt. This is a catchphrase that we have nowadays, right? Mm. But if you feel like you've been hurt by the church, um, I recommend First Corinthians because it's talking about a, a, you know, giving advice for sanctification and unity to a church that's been divided. If you're feeling condemned, this is one I'll add in there, go to Ephesians chapters one through three and study that. Study that because, yeah, that's a big deal. If you've experienced, say, a cult in the past, I recommend uh, two things. One, Go to Jesus in the Gospels, but if the cult or the messed up religious group has really made it hard for you to understand Jesus because you just keep seeing what they said instead of what he says, then I say go to Romans and do a slow verse-by-verse study of Romans. I actually have a a study, a a series going through the whole book of Romans like in a year. I taught every week for like a year going through Romans. It's all free online. I'd highly recommend that because Romans gets into like the theology of Christianity. All the major theological issues get unpacked there. And so it'll kind of like reset you, you know, on oh, yeah. what's, what's good. And if you don't want to take my word for it, just read Romans on your own. That's fine. Um, and if you've been abused in especially, especially abused as it relates to the old Testament law, somebody has abused the law in your life, the use of the Mosaic law, book of Hebrews, go to the book of Hebrews. It'll, it'll show you how you really should view it. There's my advice on all that. Yeah. Gotcha. Now I think you said past offense. You, you mentioned Psalms, was it? <clears throat> yeah. So I was trying Psalms. to catch um, and and, and I, it wasn't a typo. Sorry, I put it in there. I, I actually um, put past offended. So is, is it still the same answer you think? If, if you were the one who was offending in the past and you're just having a hard time getting over your guilt and oh, – Okay. Um, yeah. And Gosh, so sorry to put you on the spot here. But. Yeah, overcoming your own guilt, your own issues. Yeah, overcoming your own guilt and, and of, of offenses that you've committed in the past. Um, <laughs> but Yeah, there's so much you could read there because so much of the Bible is dealing with that. Um, you could read – uh, sweeping passages of the Old Testament dealing with Israel and how unfaithful they were and God was still calling them back. Like the book of Jeremiah, uh, where he's like, you know, you've done all these things, yet I'm calling you back to me. I'm calling you back to me. So there, there's one example, Jeremiah. Yeah, excellent. I, um, you could have known this, Mike, but when you answered which version should I start reading, when I was a teenager, I started going to youth group. The first version I was given was the New Living Translation. And I started right there in the Gospels. And as I've progressed through my faith in my adult life, I've moved on to the ESV and then ASV, NASV for like more in-depth studies. And right. uh, like, yeah, as, as somebody who has walked that exact path that Mike just laid out, like anyone who's watching this, that is absolutely astounding advice. The NLT really gets you into the Bible in a non um I don't want to say non-threatening, but it, it, it eases you into a lot of like really high-level concepts of um, Christianity and spirituality, and it, it 
cradles you as you're like a newborn in your faith. Um, so just to hear you affirm that is, I just wanted to say like, yes, a hundred percent. Those, those translations are a blessing. And, uh, and I, I guess I, I should, I should let everybody know I'm sponsored by the NLT, ESV, and NASB. So I get $50 every time I just say those <laughs> phrases. Oh, dang. That's not, <laughs> no, none, of that's true. <laughs> none of that's true. Could, well, <laughs> should, should we get into – so we have King James Version onlyists. We have quite a bit of that in, in our subreddit. And yeah. we, is this isn't a question we prepared here. So this is – we're going off script here for a second. But um, – I mean, does that does that fall back under the the question we had about you know keeping the main thing the main thing and you know um, focusing on what's important, majoring in the minors, or what, how how do we? I guess I mean, what what we what should we say for those of us who have no problem reading ESV, NLT, NIV, even um, for those of us who are fine with that? How, how do we? interact with um those who say no it's king james version only um and, and it's not just because you know it was it was good enough for jesus um but it's you know they, the argument of the arguments that are made are, are very um they're they're very logical arguments about you know the, the the manuscripts that were used for for um the translation of the king james version they're they were the authentic ones and uh yes there's been older stuff discovered since then but those are corrupt in some ways. I mean, what, what's the way for us, those of us who aren't bound to the King James Version, to deal with somebody who's who's hung up on it? So I don't want to say I don't. Wanna, that sounds kind of offensive, but yeah, they're they're a proponent of King James Version only, and everything else is just is bad. Um, I I guess the first question I have is like, are they making it a major, or is it just something they believe where they go? You know, that you could tell they feel a little uncomfortable, but they're still going to fellowship with you. They're not going to, like, interrupt your Bible study. They're not going to walk out of your church. They're not going to fire you if you're on staff. And you're like, you know, I, I, I walked into my fellowship one time carrying an ESV Bible, and somebody came up to me, and he was like, what is that? ES, that's ESV? This should be King James, Mike, or New King James at least, you know. And then he went and <clears throat> complained. And, you know, people know that he's got – he's that way, whatever. Uh it was really awkward, to be honest. And like a week later, the, the, his, the things he said to me, and a week later he came up to me and he was like, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I overreacted. You're my brother. I love you and appreciate what you're doing. Um, and then you could tell he just thought, we just won't talk about that issue. I could totally accept that. I don't have to change his mind. So can they fellowship with me in spite of this issue? Uh, and if the answer is no, they can't fellowship, then that's when I want to talk about it maybe a little bit with them. I don't feel like I have to change your mind on, on this. If you're interested, I have teaching on it, right? I've got, I have teaching on Bible translations and I've got a whole thing on evidence for the Bible. That series goes in great detail. It's, it's why I'm not King James only, but, um, and if people are looking for a book, I'd recommend, recommend James White's book on this. It's fantastic, super accessible, really well done. And it's, uh, called King James only controversy. Okay. Really well done. Yeah, th I'd recommend that book. That'll give you the talking points and things to discuss with people or my my video series on translations, which I guess I can link below whenever I upload this. And um, the uh, yeah, the, the question is, can they still fellowship with me in spite of this? If they can, then I don't have to change their mind. I can feel out that relationship. Is this something we can discuss or no? Either way, it's okay. If I if I can't fellowship with them because of this, then let's then let's maybe address it and see if we can overcome it together. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
So Dave, this you know, next you're, question. You're, uh, I got to tell you, your Skype, for some reason, keeps making you look like some sort of monster. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> there you go. No, who's reset. I'm like, I'm like trying not to react to it. <laughs> how's, how's the light going? Because it's yeah. the sun's going down here. It's okay. I still I see your face just fine. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, so this next question. This is the big one that's broken into four different parts. Oh, yeah. Starts with some scripture reading. Uh, do you want to read those scriptures, Mike? Do you want us to read them as part of the question? Um, I, I think we could focus on specific. Well, go ahead and go ahead and read it. Go ahead and read through this. And what we're going to get here, there's several questions that deal with like. Uh, I think it's like four potential like major concerns about contradiction between First Chronicles and Second Samuel. So maybe you could walk mm -hmm. us through that those scriptures. Yeah. Okay. So um, I'll read First Chronicles twenty one one through eight, and then Second Samuel twenty four one through ten. Chronicles passage goes. Um, and sorry, these are going to be from the ESV for anyone who's KJV only. You may want to skip ahead. Um, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go, number Israel from Beersheba to Dan, and bring me a report, that I may know their number. But Joab said, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. Are they not, my lord, the king? All of them, my lords, all of them, my lord's servants. Why then should my lord require this? Why should it be because of guilt for Israel? But the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came back to Jerusalem. When Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to David, in Israel all there were, uh, the formatting screwed up here, I think it's supposed to say 110,000 men. Yeah, in, in all Israel there were uh, 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. That's what it was. And in Judah, 470,000 who drew the sword. Now, these numbers matter because they're going to be different numbers in the parallel yes. passage. Um, but he did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering, for the king's command was abhorrent to Joab. But God was displeased with this thing, and he struck Israel. And David said to God, I have sinned greatly in that I have done this thing. But now please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have acted very foolishly. So that's the Chronicles verse. Right. Uh, the second Samuel verse says, uh, chapter 24, 1 through 10, Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does the my lord the king delight in this thing but the king's word prevailed against joab and the commanders of the army so joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of israel they crossed the jordan and began from erwar to the city of the people uh, to the city that is in the middle of the valley towards gad and on to jazer then they came to gilead and to kadesh in the land of the hittites and they came to dan and from dan they went around to sidon and came to the fortress of Tyre and all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites, and they went out to the Negev of Judah at Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and 20 days, and Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel, there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000. 
But David's heart uh, struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Ooh, walking through all those cities and <laughs> lands. Is a, <laughs> yeah, I think we should yeah. have a contest just to see every everybody read the passage and see how they pronounce the names of the cities. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you guys a secret. Personally, I don't even care if people pronounce that stuff right. I just feel like... Like to really pronounce it right, you got to go and you're like, oh yeah, we're doing know. it wrong. Even yeah. even the yeah, it's it's the Hebrew yeah. doesn't sound at all like a lot of what we have yeah. written here in the English. In English here, <laughs> no. so if I, I tried to like put on expectations, then <laughs> um, okay. So there's a couple of questions that the user has about these two passages, and the first one is who incited David to take the census, God or Satan? Um, the first Chronicles verse um, would say Satan stood against Israel and cited David to take a number. And the second uh, Samuel verse would say uh, that God, um, the Lord, gave him that command. So that's the user's question. Um, and yeah, he says this seems like a huge contradiction. So which which was it? So I, I think this one actually, of all the questions on this passage, this to me is the easier of them. Uh, mm-hmm. This one, I don't think it's accidental, intentional. I think that we're getting one passage that says that God incited, and it's the same Hebrew word actually used. God incited David to to against Israel, and the other passage it says that Satan incited him. So was it God or Satan? Well, I, I don't think it's an either or. Um, <clears throat> I think it was God, and it was Satan. God incited in the sense that God planned to chasten David and Israel over their sin issues through this census, through his, through this rebellion. And Satan incited it as the agent who inspired it, but his hope was to simply destroy. He doesn't know God's ultimate plan. Now, this might sound convenient, but often good answers do sound convenient. Like, oh, well, that works really well, doesn't it? Well, yeah, it does <laughs> because it works, I think. But let me, let me back it up with more. Um, God's sovereignty in scripture is viewed as like this overarching sovereignty. It doesn't violate the free will of creatures necessarily. Like he could if he wants to, but it doesn't necessarily violate the free will of creatures, but he's still sovereign. And there's a difference between sovereign and, and control. God is sovereign, but he's not necessarily controlling every single thing. Uh, he's in control, but doesn't mean he's controlling everything. So Amos 3.6 puts it this way. It says, if a trumpet is blown in a city, will not the people tremble? And if a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? Has the Lord done it? But they obviously thought Moabites and Canaanites and, and hailstones and other things were causing calamity. But they also saw that God had a purpose and a plan in it still. And this is not, this is meant to be a comfort to God's people that even in hardship, he has an ultimate plan. Biblically teaching, uh, we have examples of this. So in Job, God intends to do a great work. Satan intends to ruin Job's faith, right? God and Satan are both involved in the Job process. And if you had written about it in two accounts, you could say God brought destruction on Job. And you could then say Satan brought destruction on Job. But you'd realize they were performing different roles in this. It doesn't make Satan God's partner like he's like, hey, hey, buddy, let's come up with a plan. (laughs) Rather, God's going to even use his enemies to accomplish his ultimate goals and ends. Look at the cross. Satan enters Judas to inspire Judas to betray Jesus. Like this is Satan's agenda. He wants to kill Christ. But yet Jesus chose Judas and then tells him like what you do, do quickly. So we see both agents active at once, God and Satan in different capacities and for different purposes. 
First Peter talks about this as well. We get this like all over the Bible. Um, it says that in First Peter four nineteen that there are those who suffer according to the will of God. We suffer according to the will of God. Speaking of persecution and hardships. And 1 Peter 5.8 then tells us, watch out because your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Wait, is it is it Satan or is it God? Well, in different functions, it's either one. Paul has a thorn in his flesh. Let me read this to you guys. Thinking about these different layers, how God and Satan can both be active in different ways at the same time. This is what Paul says about the thorn in his flesh in 2 Corinthians 12.7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, so to keep him humble, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now, Satan's goal is not to keep Paul humble. <laughs> he just wants to torment him. It's God's goal to keep Paul humble. And when Paul prays, I prayed three times, Lord, remove this. And God's like, nope, <clears throat> my grace is sufficient for you. Like, I'm, I'm bringing power out of your weakness. I have an agenda here. So the whole Bible is, is God triumphing over Satan, even as Satan does his thing. This happens all throughout scripture. Um, another example of this is Genesis 50 verse 20, where Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, he goes, you meant this for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Interestingly enough, side note, speaking of like Jesus in the Old Testament stuff, uh, David in the census in order to stop the plague that happens as a result of the census, David offers sacrifices on Mount Moriah where Abraham offered Isaac, which then becomes the place where the temple is built because it's the place where the plague stopped, which then becomes the thing that is a, an image of Christ who is his, his death is incited by Satan, but also it's a must happen in the will of God as well. So it's interesting how it all ties together with, um, with ultimately ultimate salvation. I think it's neat. Yeah. I love that. Um, so continuing on with these same passages, right. uh, the ne next question was, why don't the numbers of the census match? Um, and the user asks, couldn't the scribe who wrote First Chronicles, which he heard was authored later, either way, um, just check Second Samuel rather than indoctrinate such or introduce such an easily checked discrepancy. The Israelite Jewish scribal tradition holds accurate transmission of text in the highest regards, so surely they would check their work. Why would these two accounts use chunks of verbatim wording um, that extend beyond just the scriptures that we wrote or we read there, um, and use similar wording everywhere in between, and then get the numbers wrong? So it suggests that maybe they were based on each other, or they were both based on a common source. Uh, but they're wondering why they would contradict then, or apparently right. contradict. Right, right. Why did, okay, so to, to lay this out for people, uh, in Second Samuel, we have 800,000. In First Chronicles, we have 1.1 Okay, so that, that'll be the first discrepancy. The other discrepancy is 470,000 versus 500,000. So the first discrepancy is 300,000 difference, 800,000 versus 1.1 million. Um, but there is an important difference that we get in the passage. There's the uh, first Chronicles, which has a bigger number, 1.1 million. It describes them as men who drew the sword, men who draw the sword. Okay, so uh, if you're under 20, you don't go out to battle. And if you just got married and you're in the first year of your marriage, you don't go out to battle. So men who, who drew the sword is probably a reference to people who are generally over 20 years old. But in 2 Samuel, it looks like it might be numbering a different group of people. It says valiant men who drew the sword. Now, that might not seem like a big deal, valiant men who drew the sword. But 
But Second Samuel, this this phrase "valiant men," it's not a reference to age, whereas "men who drew the sword" probably is a reference generally to age over twenty or older. But "valiant men" is used in Second Samuel in every case to identify not how old somebody is. It's used three times in Second Samuel. It's always in the context of someone who has is especially capable in battle. So they're not just fighters; they're like like David's mighty men. Think of it used in kind of that sort of context. So they're especially, in other words, they're probably, this is, you know, one possible explanation. Is it guaranteed? No, I'm just trying to draw from the text to see if there's a difference here. Um, it may be that these men are like, they've already been through battle successfully. So they're considered valiant men. They've gone into war. They succeeded. They came back alive. They're valiant men. It might be that the other 300,000 were untested. These men are, who can officially be part of the army, but they haven't gone through the battles yet. That might explain the difference there. Um, there's an alternate view to this. And this is what we do with, with supposed contradiction. You go, what are the possible options here? An alternative is that in First Chronicles 27, we have a list of a total of 288,000 people. And they're um, like a standing army. And one theory, I, I'm not inclined to this one, but one theory is that the First Chronicles 27 quantity of 288,000, these weren't counted in the census. They were simply added later when you're adding up how many people were really there. Because Joab never finished the census. The census was never completed. So they might be adding other numbers they're aware of they got through other means because they have a standing army of a certain number of people. That would also potentially explain it. Um, let's talk, though, about the men of Judah. That's the men of Israel, men of Judah, which is the southern area. Second Samuel says there were 500,000. First Chronicles says there was 470,000 possible solutions. Well, the first possible solution probably comes to everyone's mind. Oh, well, maybe Second Samuel's just rounding it to the closest 100,000, right? 800,000, 500,000. That, <clears> that's entirely possible. Um, it, it, they weren't nearly as concerned with the exactitude in numbers as we often are nowadays with our counting. So that's a possible solution. There's another possible solution. Second Samuel um, and First Chronicles, one of the differences between them is that in one passage, it expressly says Joab didn't count Benjamin or the Levites. The other passage doesn't mention this. It might be that the higher number in 2 Samuel is including numbers from Benjamin that were known but weren't counted by Joab. So we have different people going, maybe they have different goals you know, in their writing, why they're recording it the way they are. So these, uh, these might seem like cute explanations to people. The point is they're actually drawn from the text. These are actually available options for us. Okay, the 800,000 may be valiant men or experienced warriors. The 500,000, the extra 30,000 could simply be the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, interestingly enough, the tribe of Benjamin having 30,000 is consistent with other places of, this, of the text as well. They weren't counted by Joab. And that's highlighted in 1 Chronicles, but not 2 Samuel. They may have included those numbers anyways because they were more interested in getting the, the fuller account. So, yeah, that, that would uh, I think I think that that would explain this this one. It's interesting to me how many of these things seem to resolve when you look at the actual wording of the text very carefully. Yeah, and we get a lot of these types of questions on the uh, on the subreddit. People yeah. are very interested in the making sure the most intricate detail of scriptures down to the very last minutia. Yeah, um, and yeah, they're at it as a. I think. Um, modern day um, journalistic accounts you know we're trying to we're trying to hold the Bible to that to the standard of what we're used to today where it's it's, it's got to be the journalistic standard and it's got to be exact and you know no fake news it's got to be 100% accurate all the time 
Um, not saying the Bible isn't accurate, but um, you know we're we don't account for the the fact that uh, you know whatever the reason is here. You know why is there a difference? There's there's explanations for it. It, it doesn't have to um, sh- uh, account out exactly. It, yeah, and, uh, and I like to point out to people too, like if if you're a non-believer asking these questions about numbers in First Chronicles this isn't really very important for you. <laughs> like I was just saying, because let me say it this way, like Christianity does not stand or fall on the number comparisons between second Samuel and first Chronicles. It's not as though the resurrection of Jesus depends on accurate number counts. It, now I think they're accurate. Don't get me wrong. What I'm saying mm-hmm. is as a Christian, I care very much about the exact accuracy of scripture. At least I should clarify that to the point that it was intending to be accurate. Obviously, you only want as much accuracy as they were intending to give you. But but if a non-believer is trying to think, maybe I'll be Christian, maybe I'll trust the Bible, but first explain to me these two different census numbers. I'm thinking <laughs> you might have other motives for wanting to move away from Scripture. How about you start with Jesus and his resurrection? Because I never, never saw the Apostle Paul run out into Athens and say, the census numbers were all accurate, guys. Like, he's never, <laughs> no, he's like, Jesus died and rose again for your sins. This is the central message of the, of the gospel of Christ. Let's start here, man. And then even, there are even Christians who love Jesus and, and do believe the Bible is God's word who don't hold to inerrancy. Now, mm-hmm. I think they're wrong. But I also think that's an issue that's an in-house discussion amongst Christians. I, I wouldn't want to have to prove that to non-believers. Uh, inerrancy is a very difficult um, conversation to have when when you have sixty-six books to discuss. You're gonna, you're never going to end the discussion. Every every issue leads to another one, and then you're like, wait a minute, can we can we get the salvation thing figured out first, and then we'll continue this talk. And I, I do just want to point out that the user here, um, I think, represents a lot of us. That he doesn't, he says he doesn't believe the Bible fundamentally contradicts, and every other apparent contradiction he's come across has been resolved with better understanding of the situation. Right. And I mean, I think all of us can say that, yeah. Uh, every time I've come across something that I'm like, oh, that doesn't seem to jive with you know what was said over here. Mm-hmm. The more I understood the word. And I understood, uh, and you have to do some actual research sometimes. Um, but the more I got into it, the more the Bible fundamentally did not contradict itself. It was, you know, I, I believe biblical inerrancy, and I have yet to be proven wrong in, in my personal life. So yeah. I, I just want to say this user, um, I think, represents a lot of us. Yeah. Yeah, I think he represents the sincere believer who's just like, hey, help, I'm, I'm, I'm confused by this. And to me, that's like the exact right time to have the discussion, yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, hey, before we go too much further there, Matt, can we give this user some credit and share his name? Yes, this is uh, – sorry, in case I didn't say it. This is user Berkman. Yeah. So we're about halfway through user Berkman's <laughs> questions got, of the census. He's got a lot of questions. <laughs> All right. Dave, you want to get the second half? Um, yeah, so this is, um, James one 13 through 15. Um, how do we reconcile with what James wrote here? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death in the account of King David, taking a census to reconcile with 
with what James says, we would like we would have to accept the First Chronicles account where it was Satan who incited David to do the thing uh, that was evil in God's sight, because according to James, God tempts no one. If Second Samuel is the correct account, then James is in error because here. God incited David to do what was evil, then killed 70,000 people in the land as punishment, which doesn't seem just. Was James not familiar with this account from 2 Samuel? Could you explain this? I don't believe the Bible fundamentally contradicts. I think it's what Matt just said. And almost every other apparent contradiction I've come across has been eventually resolved with better understanding, but this one still baffles Berkman. Yeah. Um, So I think uh, part of us is – Part of this is to realize what James is really talking about is something a little different than what's happening with David. So James is like, hey, uh, don't blame your sinful desires on God. That's what James is really getting into here. And he's like, when, when, when you're tempted, don't be like, oh, God did this. No, no, no. And he describes you. You're tempted and when you're drawn away and enticed by your own desires. So God may put you through testing. This is consistent in scripture. God puts us into situations that are testing us and allows those things to happen or causes them even sometimes. Um, But you don't sin because you're in a situation that's hard. You sin because you wanted to sin. And that's what James is getting at. Really kind of an arrogance and a pride that he's got. Um, And so if, if that's the case, well, David... Did was tempted to do the census to actually do it. The internal desire to do it would have been rooted in his own pride. His pride was his sin issue. God didn't cause that. Uh, I once knew somebody who had said that um, she. This is a really it's a true story. Really dark, dark moment in, in their life, and they they were like, you know, I um, we had this this house guest, this male house guest, and she. Not me. She had the male house guest. <laughs> and uh, he was staying there for a while. And she was going through a hard day and a hard time. And she went up and she propositioned him like for intimate sexual relationship. And and this was she was in the middle of going through like a divorce. It was a real, whole situation was just a big disaster. And before there had been nothing between the two of them. No, nothing even hinted at. Now, later she told a story to me and she says, I guess. God wanted me to know what it felt like to be people who struggle with that sort of thing. And I thought, oh, no, you're really delusional. Like, <laughs> like no, you did that because you wanted to. Like, you wanted that. That that came from you. God didn't put that desire in your heart. And that's the same thing with David. Like, uh, nothing in the passage suggests that God put a desire in David's heart to rebel against God here. God seems to have allowed Satan to come, like, maybe unblocked Satan from providing temptation, David says yes to it because he's drawn away by his own pride and enticed and he wants to do it. I think all that's pretty consistent with James. So God puts us in scenarios that that uh, challenge us, but the desire to sin comes from something with comes from somewhere within us. It doesn't come from the scenario. If that hope that makes sense to you. Awesome. It made sense to me. Yeah. So. Now, there's one that we missed, though, that he asked. I don't know if you guys skipped it on purpose or not, but there was about Rehoboam and Jeroboam. and Yes, we did miss that. Um, oh, is that my fault? Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. That is – sorry. That's that's all me. Uh, no why does it say uh, Israel and Judah in this passage when – let me let me start over there. Uh, I thought we'd already covered this one, but okay. 
Okay, 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 got it. Why does it say Israel and Judah in this passage when it was before the kingdom split into Israel and Judah in the time of Rehoboam and Jeroboam? Wouldn't David's census have not made the distinction between the territory of the later kingdoms of Israel and Judah? Yeah, so this is great. Uh, they're like, wait, why, why is the whole census Israel and Judah when it was years later when they split, when the kingdom split? Um, and the, the answer is about the reason why the kingdom split into the northern southern kingdom into Israel and Judah is because those distinctions always existed. And so we even see this with with David's reign that they weren't two different nations exactly, but they were sort of two different sort of like centers of allegiance in the nation of Israel amongst the tribes. Israel, which is a nickname, they're all descendants of Jacob, right, of Israel, but Israel nickname for the north, Judah nickname for the south, but Judah would include parts of Ephraim and Benjamin and stuff like that. Um, we see this in David's time when he actually becomes king. He's king in Judah for like, I think it was seven years before he becomes king for all of Israel. You see that even when David becomes king initially, there's already a, a, some allegiance going on where the tribes are sort of clustering together around different uh, groups. So yeah, the, the, uh, the thing we're getting here is this explains why in the days of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they split the way they did was because these allegiances were already in existence. Awesome. So can I just ask, I mean, to expound upon the, the underlying principle here, are, are there passages in the Bible that you find just very difficult to explain? Even, you know, I don't know if this was a on your top 10 list or not, but are, are there other passages that are like, wow, that's that's a that's a difficult one to, to, to explain? I guess when we're talking about biblical inerrancy and, and no yeah. contradictions in the Bible. Um, so what's, I, what, what's your top passage? Yeah, Go what ahead, happens sorry. with me, what happens with me is I tend to like, come across one and I think the same thing. I go, man, this is really tough. Like, I don't know how I'm going to resolve that. Like, I want to have integrity here. I want to be honest. If I can't resolve it, I can't resolve it. I don't have to have the solution. I just want a solution. Yeah. Um, and so what, what I end up doing is then I'll spend a lot of time on that one issue and then I resolve it and then it like goes off my list. And so what tends to happen is not that I have a list of ones I can't resolve. It's rather that someone brings up one and I go, oh, I haven't really spent time on that yet. Mm. What a conundrum. Hmm, let me go dig in. And like this one in particular, I hadn't really spent time on it. So I was like, okay, I'll have to study on this. I have to look into this. Yeah. And I thought maybe when the interview comes, I won't know the answer. I'm going to have to admit that if that's the case. I, uh, but I found an answer that I think is, is pretty reasonable. And yeah, that's what tends to happen. It's, it's when you know this much about the issue and you don't really dig deep that you tend to overestimate its challenge that it presents. Uh, not that you can always solve every problem, but I don't have like a big glaring error that stands out to me is like, man, I wish I could fix that. <laughs> There's nothing like that uh, currently. Yeah. I think you're right though. I mean, it does. I, I know personally, yeah, cross them off my list and there's things I've struggled with in the past that are just, they were, big, they were major. They, they seemed like a big deal that, you know, the, the numbers don't match. That's, you know, if, if I'm an accountant, you know, and that's a big deal for me, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> they should match. Uh, but after a while, yeah, they get off of our list and, and we move on to other things. It's, it really good. It drives us to studying and, and trying to understand it more. And it's, it's, it's a good journey to go through, I think. Yeah, me too. Cool. So uh, we got a softball for you now. All uh, right. User Gray Fox right. wants to know, how come you never play your guitar? <laughs> <laughs> I actually play my guitar. Every Sunday night, I leave worship at my church uh, for my little Sunday evening service. It's just like a small gathering. I'm, well, it's gotten a little bigger because we have guests now who come from random places. But um, but yeah, actually, I do worship every every week. But I don't play it on stream typically, like on 
you know, camera for a couple of reasons. One is I'm just, I'm teaching. I'm not really focused on that. So I'm teaching. And I, I do think like if I was to just try to incorporate a bunch of guitar stuff, it would, I feel like it would hurt the reach of the content. <laughs> I think more people would tune out. Um, but also there's copyright issues. If you play even part of a copyrighted song that's identifiable and you're playing it in a way that's recognizable, you could within like 10 minutes get copyright uh, restrictions on your video content online. And they're always getting better mm -hmm. at, at restricting those things. You could just sing a couple lines, one line of a song, and you can get copyright restrictions. Or, or the worst case is they actually take your whole video down. Um, mm -hmm. Or you have to go and edit out that section, that chunk remove that piece of the video. So that's, that's part of the reason why. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I have the guitar here. I played on my own and, uh, I, I enjoy that, but not usually on camera just <laughs> for those, those reasons. Yeah. Next time we have a census question, we'll have you put it to song. <laughs> write a little <laughs> census song. <laughs> Sing a ballad. <laughs> Me next. Mm -hmm. All right. Peace. Brother Mike. I've discovered your channel a couple of months ago when I first heard about the Hebrew Roots Movement, and I almost gave into it before seeing your videos on them. You've been a great blessing to me ever since, and I give glory to God for the way that he's been using you. That being said, I wonder how you interpret 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. These two verses have almost more interpretations than I have fingers in my hands, and there are even claims that the verses were misplaced by a scribe or simply added since verses 33 and 36 flow without them. Thank you for doing this and may God bless you. All right. So I, I dig, I dug into this freshly for today. I probably spent a good, decent number of hours prepping for our little discussion here today. And this is one of the things I spent a lot of time on. Um, let me read the passage to you guys and then we'll walk through some of the issues here. It says in first Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, the women are to keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but are to subject themselves. Just as the law also says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now you understand why people are debating on this section of scripture. Uh, let me tackle these issues one at a time. First, is it added? Um, I defer to scholarship here. I'm not a textual critic. I'm not qualified to like be the one telling us these are the verses that belong and don't. As far as I can tell, it seems like a real minority of people that suggest that it's added. And I can sense a motivation to want to remove these verses from the text of scripture. I did actually read through a breakdown of, of the various manuscripts where there's like a, it's like in a margin here, or it's, it's, it's dislocated here in this manuscript or that manuscript. And it, it does seem to me based on what they're reporting, that it seems unlikely that it was added. Like we, we should struggle with this. And this is of course why you're going to see this in the main text, not the footnotes, but the main text of pretty much any translation you grab. Seems pretty consistent. The ones I checked, it was all there. So I'm going to say we should struggle with this text. We should apply this to our lives. Um, but context helps. It helps us to realize it. And here's the thing. We live in a trigger society. When you bring up the issue of women and their roles, you are so careful with what you say because you don't want to be misunderstood. Paul didn't do that at all. <laughs> <laughs> he is, nope. If you want to understand him, you got to read him carefully. You can't be like, Paul, you better not say it that way. Like, for instance, here's a careful reading of Paul. He says they are to subject themselves, which is the opposite of somebody subjecting them. God's counsel to women about, about roles of submission is always that it's intentional and purposeful. A man who's forcing a woman to submit, that's oppression, that's abuse, 
a woman who chooses to, su to submit, a child who chooses to submit, an employee who chooses to submit. These are godly ways of honoring Christ and humility and, uh, and serving in whatever role God's given you. Um, so there's an example of how he'll say subject themselves and they'll think of it as a trigger term. And I'm like, actually, that's kind of like a women's rights thing along with biblical. I'm, I'm a complementarian. This seems like a complementarian passage here uh, as opposed to egalitarian where we, we would <clears throat> they would kind of push against this text for various reasons. So let's put it in more context uh, with with First Corinthians, pardon me, as a whole, Paul is actually OK with women talking in church. He is for sure. He is First uh, Corinthians eleven five makes it clear that women were prophesying in the church and Paul was okay with this. So they were prophesying in church in Acts, we get more context of the first century church uh, where it talks about Philip and how he had seven daughters that prophesied. So he has, there's women who are speaking and pro pro prophetic speech is a special kind of speech, right? Like they're not just talking in church. They're actually proclaiming truths about God. It's prophecy. They're, <clears throat> they're bringing forth stuff under the, under the leading of the spirit. That word silent, though, um, it may not be the best translation to say women should keep silent in churches. The word silent, sigao, is the Greek. It means to refrain, or at least one of the meanings, which seems to be the meaning here, to refrain from using a particular kind of speech or speech in a certain context. So then we zoom out from verse 34 and 35 and get the context. Here's my interpretation of it for your consideration. The judgment of prophecy is the, is the whole context in verses 29 through 35. We already know in 1 Corinthians 11, 5, women can give prophecy in church. But in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 29 through 35, it's about the judgment of prophecy, the evaluation of prophecy. If verses 34 and 35 are seen in that context, then an interpretation seems obvious to me. And I'm going to quote here from Anthony Thistleton, his commentary on 1 Corinthians. He puts it this way. The speaking in question the speaking that the woman's asked not to do, denotes the activity of sifting or weighing the words of prophets, especially about asking probing questions about the prophet's theology or even the prophet's lifestyle in public. This is where Paul's like, let them ask at home, depending on how the translation renders it. Let them ask their own husbands at home if they, if they want to understand something. The idea is somebody gives a prophecy, a word of the Lord, could be a man, could be a woman. Then there's the elders and leaders of the church who are considered the faithful, reliable, Leaders who are, who are in the context of, I believe, Paul's writing supposed to be men. And these guys are judging the prophecy. They're like, let's test that word. And maybe they ask the guy. They ask about the consistency of his walk. They ask if he has endorsements from other church leaders if he's a guest. You know, do you have like letters from the church you came from? Why we should trust you. They ask him, what did you mean by that? Was, you know, is that consistent with the theology that we've got from scripture? They're testing to make sure that this prophetic statement is consistent if it's from God or not. Like test all things, hold fast to that, which is good. So the idea is, um, and this is consistent in the passage, preserving proper relationships, right? proper relationships of, of, of authority and submission in a godly context, which is not oppressive, but is meant to like, represent to the world that the church is a place of order. And that's Paul's main concern in 1 Corinthians 14 is order in the church instead of disorder and chaos. So yeah, that's my interpretation. And, and people are free to disagree with this, but... Um, <clears throat> it's simply saying, hey, uh, ladies are not supposed to be the ones judging and sifting and testing the prophetic statements that happen in the church. If they do have questions, they shouldn't use their questions to probe and poke at stuff. They should just ask those questions at home. But this also says that women were present in the fellowship and were part of it and active in the in the ministry. Uh, what do you guys have a follow up question on that, or does that feel like does that feel like I've answered it for you? 
No, not so much a follow-up, just to, just a comment that it's – well, first off, I'll, I'll say that was user uh, 2DUTC um, who, who asked that one. Thank you for it. Good question. Um, it's, it's a complicated answer, I think, uh, because it's – well, especially today. Um, you know, my wife and I discussed this this topic quite a bit, and um, it's I, I don't I don't have an easy way to explain it to be honest with you because it's it it seems very anti twenty twenty one. It seems very anti women, and and there's there's just a lot of things that have happened uh, even recently in the church. Um, you know, leaders who have who have done horrific things that this verse just makes it seem like it's it's. Uh, a male-dominated thing we have going on here. <laughs> we have three guys here doing this Q and A. Um, yeah. This, so, this, yeah. This is challenge. a great. This is a great. Uh, what you're bringing up is a great point. I'm gonna. I want to highlight for a second. Is that okay? Let's say that the complementarian view of is right. You're either going to view it as good and proper or as offensive. It's like there's no middle ground. Yeah. It, if the complementarianism is true, which means that we have different we're equal in in status we're equal in in value we have different roles we have different roles we're all heirs in the in the body of Christ we have different roles and functions in the church as well as in the home and you're either going to see this as good and proper part of God's created order and design or you'll see it as highly offensive i think the complementarian view is true and i think it's good and i think our culture being offended about it is bad now relating it to like say uh, say like Ravi Zacharias and his abuse of women. Well, that certainly is not biblical. <laughs> On no yeah. reading of scripture is that appropriate. I mean, uh, no, absolutely not. Like this is this is this is uh, disgusting and wrong and evil and 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 horrible. And so yeah, like you know, oppressing others is not the result. I think of complementarian views. But I will say this: I'm doing a, a, a research project on this topic, on the role of women in the church, because I've always been complementarian. But I have not fully done every bit of research on the topic. So after I finish the Mark series, which I'm in right coming to the tail of right now, I'm going to spend like I don't know a month or so just reading everything I can get my hands on on complementarian and egalitarian views, and then I'm going to do a full teaching on it, uh, bringing as much clarity as I can to the topic. And I'm open to changing my mind. I mean, I, maybe I would come and offer you a different view of this passage. I don't expect to, but I'm open to it. You know. Where do you? I guess where do you draw the line then between? Um, I feel like the 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 controversy arises when 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 we're talking about um, women's role in churches and ministry. Um, the controversy arises when it it seems to be held up as as a I guess a tenet of of biblical conservancy, um, which I think we've discussed earlier. That's not political conservancy, uh, but when we're being biblically conservative, when we're sticking to the word. It, it it seems to fall in the same circles of, as when we're talking about biblical inerrancy. Is if 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 you if you hold to the Bible being true, then you also have to say that it comes it comes across this way. I'm not saying that's what it says, but it comes across as women are less than men. Do you think and, the Bible uh, teaches that women are less than men? I do not. Okay, I do not. But, but it's 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 so the you're saying challenge it's of trying to it's perceived that way. It's not that it is yeah. that way. It's that people take it that way. So. This is where uh, Jesus says, like, <clears throat> destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. Mm-hmm. How did they take it? Jesus is going to destroy the temple. I see. Like, well, this mm-hmm. has always been the plague uh, on Christianity. Find the thing that – find the weak spot where Christianity is the most vulnerable to um, to to vilifying it in, the, in, the, in front of people. So the early Romans, uh, they, w- they taught that Christians were cannibals. 
right? Because they because they have communion and they talk about how you have, you have you have to like someone read the Gospel of John. You eat my flesh, drink my blood. They don't they just like they misunderstood him in John. <laughs> so be, I I think almost misunderstood on purpose. Like let's what's the worst thing we can say about them using their own texts? Okay, well let's say that Paul's a Paul's a chauvinist and he's oppressive to women. But when you actually read the text, that's not true. Like this isn't true unless simply having roles, different roles, is oppressive. So like, let's say that my wife comes to me and she goes, um, I always want to have a voice, and she does, uh, but I'm going to let you make the final decision on things, especially big stuff. You know, I'll let you make that final choice. Um, is, that, is this an oppressive moment or is this a moment of love and submission? And if you're convinced this is oppressive, there's nothing I can say that's going to ever change that. And, and um, it creates a lot of angst and anxiety and irritation and it creates confusion in marriages. Because I think that if people don't know, like I, I've talked to people, I don't know, are you guys married at all? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I've talked to people who say in their marriage, like, well, we both make decisions. Nobody has the final call that I'm like, right. <laughs> Somebody has the final call. It may be you. It might be your wife. Somebody does. Right. And if God says, here's how I want you to handle that, then you should handle it that way. Right. But if you view that as oppressive and you want to make believe that, that, equality means sameness in every regard then you're 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 going to vilify a lot of things a lot of things that are actually making for i think healthy relationships uh, so yeah I, i'm not going to fit in with culture i'm just going to bite the bullet and, and they're going to call me a bigot and a chauvinist and i'm going to say okay you may as well call me a cannibal and say that i'm going to destroy the temple too i just i don't know how to fix that hmm and a vampire. I mean, drinking blood. A vampire. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, so let's go from one charge topic to another. Leviticus. Uh, uh, sorry, this question comes from user. Gonna screw this one. That one. <laughs> I want to say the name is Cryos Dade Karsten. So, sounds if that good. sounds like your username, this one's this one's you. Uh, <laughs> The question is, Leviticus 18.22 says, Thou shalt not lie with mankind as with womankind. It is abomination. Should this be interpreted as is, or is it more likely medicinal advice, not spreading diseases? Um, does this mark homosexuality as sin? And then they also say animals can be homosexual too, so do they also sin? Um, yeah. Okay. Let's let's kind of take it one at a time here. Does it does it mark homosexuality as just a simple sin, like straightforward, like this is something not to do? The answer there would be yes. Um, don't and and <clears throat> let me just highlight the wording here is like mm -hmm. don't do with a man what you do with a woman that's proper, which would be marriage, right? When a, when a man and woman get married, that, that this is like ideally an intimate, loving relationship. He's like, don't do this between two men. Um, let me read it to you, though, in context, because a lot of the Old Testament law, you could argue, well, that's for Israel. Why would I think that's for non israel You know, is it for Gentiles, too? Because if God judges Israel that way, it might be because, like, with the Sabbath or with, like, say, Passover, observe Passover, he doesn't punish other nations for not observing Passover because he never told them to do it. So is this for Israel, for all people? Um, well, let me read to you guys uh, Leviticus 18, 20 through 25. Uh, listen to the context here. I think it answers our questions for us. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. 
okay, that's probably not medicinal. This is like, don't do adultery. This is about adultery, right? You shall not give any of your offspring over to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Well, that, that had to do with taking your kids and they would burn them alive as an offering to Molech. They burn their children, their living children alive. They burn them. Okay, that's just, obviously this is a pretty extreme thing. The next verse, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. Next verse, also you shall not have intercourse with any animal to be defiled with it, nor shall any woman stand before any animal to mate with it. It's a perversion. Do not defile yourselves by any of these things. And then here's a key. For by all these, the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. For the land has become defiled. Therefore, I've brought its punishment upon it. So the land has spewed out its inhabitants. So this is about the, the Canaanites that were inhabiting the land before Israel shows up. And God expressly says in this passage, the things I'm telling you, these specific rules, this is what they did. And I'm punishing them for it. My point is, if God judges Gentiles who don't have the law for these things, then it must be a universal truth, not just a law of Moses type thing. So, um, so yeah, now the, the, some people get hooked up on the word abomination there and they go, yeah, but the Bible says like eating lobsters <laughs> is an abomination. Actually, that's a different word in the Hebrew. Uh, our English translations sometimes use the same word. It's a very different word in the Hebrew, different context. Uh, it's not the same as shellfish, okay? <laughs> and it's not the word abomination when you get hung up on. It's the teaching that this is universally something God doesn't want mankind to do. It's a behavior he doesn't want. Could it be just medical advice? Well, I mean, it might be medically helpful, but to say it's only medical advice would be to take context to be kind of adding something that the original audience never would have thought about. And it seems to be sin that brings judgment. And I, I think <clears throat> Leviticus is one passage that talks about this, but Romans 1 makes it even more clear. Very, very clear. This is this is something God's very serious about. And this is, again, where we're going to conflict with our culture because they're going to mm -hmm. be like, if you don't approve of this behavior, I'm going to hate you. <laughs> like This is this is the current reaction. Um, I think that you're judgmental and you're weird and rude and angry and you're a horrible person. And the response is, uh, the question isn't whether I approve of it. The question is whether God approves of it and then whether I want to submit to God's approval or not. And when you make it, it's not about me and you. This is about the creator of the universe and how he said he wants us to live. It's possible that we love things that he hates. We should pay attention to that. So, yeah, it seems to be sin that brings judgment. Now, if someone says, but animals do it. Animals have, I've heard this many times. Animals have homosexual relationships. It's, that means yeah. it's natural, therefore it's okay. But where do we get the idea that typical animal behavior is okay for humans? Like, where does this come from? Like, animals eat their babies. Animals kill their mates. Animals steal mm -hmm. things all the time. They just constantly steal things. The other day, I go on a walk with my wife every day, and we saw a crow chasing a squirrel. And we figured it had probably taken a, uh, tried to get an egg out of the crow's nest. And that crow's like harassing this squirrel. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, animals go walking around naked all the time. Animals mm -hmm. rape each other. They just do. They just rape each other and murder. I mean... No, like animal behavior is not the standard for me. And to, to, to think that if animals do it, I'll do it is a weird, it, it, and I'm not suggesting that the asker, the person who asked the question believes this, that they're just <clears throat> trying to get answers to tough questions. But, but if I do operate from a place of thinking, whatever animals do, I can do. This is not a Christian worldview. We're not like the animals. Man was made in the image of God and we have a higher calling and we have a different responsibility in creation uh, compared yeah. to animals. Which is why, like, you know, when a dog bites me, I don't react the same as when my neighbor bites me, right? Because, like, I'm yeah. upset with the dog. I'm bothered. But if my neighbor bites me, I'm like, that was worse. 
That was inhumane. We use the word inhumane, which doesn't even With a mean, human. Yeah, it's inhuman. It, like it doesn't even mean um because like animals do inhumane things to each other all the time, but it doesn't count because they're not humans. We do assume humans have a different standard. When humans do that, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a whole different conversation if your neighbor's dog bites you versus your neighbor. Like yeah. the vibe in the neighborhood goes down real quick. <laughs> some, some awkward moments that are in the neighborhood. <laughs> I I mean, I've, I've gotten that. I feel that question before. Um, I'm, uh, I help with the youth group at my church and every week we break out into, we call them tribes, little small groups. And mm-hmm. I lead the junior high, uh, boys. And so they, they ask tough questions and I've heard this question asked in the past. And mm-hmm. my response is always, have you ever watched your dog throw up and then eat it? Yeah. Is that a good situation? Like, no, that's, bad it shouldn't do that and you need to yeah. like you need to actively pull your dog away from that situation like because it's harmful to the dog yeah and in that way there are things that can seem good to the person doing them that can be harmful to them that we you know are called to pull people away from sometimes and it's right. not a fun conversation in our culture um and you know i i always tell them like you know if these people aren't Christians, like, that's not a conversation you need to go have with them. Like, you don't need to walk up to a gay couple and be like, just so you guys know, I got a God and he says you're sinning. Like, that's not a productive conversation with people most of the time. Um, but it is it is something that, you know, you if you are reading the Bible, I pull people out of Leviticus and I bring them into the New Testament. And I'm like, I don't really want to talk about what the Levitical law says about that because people have hangups. Like, I want to talk about what the New Testament says, um, what the law of Christ says, as we're talking about these kind of tough cultural topics. Yeah, I think I think this question and the last one, they, they, they touch on a really key thing, which is we're just aware of how triggered people get on these topics. And it makes us mm-hmm. concerned in conversation with them. And so I want to offer clarity, but... Like I want to explain to people like, hey, when we say that, uh, you know, the Bible is opposed to homosexuality, that's actually kind of a clumsy way to say it, right? Because it talks about the physical behavior, not some inclination. So if someone says, I'm attracted to the same sex, I'll go, okay, well, you deal with temptation just like everybody else. I I, I view you no different. You don't have to, you don't even have to fix the temptation. You just follow Christ, right? So um, I want to try to separate the identity from the behavior and focus on the behavior as something God calls us to deal with. I want to try to bring those kinds of clarity things. I want to explain that if someone found real real love, they, they feel like real acceptance and love and kindness in a gay relationship, then I want to say, well, I think the love and acceptance and kindness was great. It's the sexual part that was bad. That I want to try to be clear. I'm not trying to, to act like you never were nice to each other or something weird like that. Like, so I want to provide those types of nuance that I think might help. Um, mm-hmm. But I kind of, the, the longer I've done this, the more I'm just like, well, look, you know, like some people are going to be angry no matter what. And the more I'm gentle and the more I'm like super like apologetic about my views, the more it just justifies. Because to them, it's like, see, you know, you're wrong. You know, you're being all nice and stuff like that. And so I start to wonder, like, what is the right approach? What is the right approach? You know, like when Paul went to Athens and he tells them all like, yeah, your idols are all false. Like this was, this was hugely unpopular (laughs) to say, you know, that he's actually very confrontive about that stuff. Um, he come on to all men everywhere to repent. Like he, you know, they they said the word repent a lot more than most of us do, I think back then. Yeah. So I think, I mean, 
I'll, you say confrontational. I mean, I think that's that's part of the challenge when we're we're dealing with people who struggle with homosexuality is it has been done incorrectly by many of our Christian brothers and sisters. It's been done incorrectly in the past, and I mean, I, I feel compelled to apologize for uh, you know the way it's been so portrayed so wrong and and, and yeah. just handled so wrong. Now, I mean, where, just, where are you guys from? What what like state do you live in? I'm in Virginia, Virginia, and I'm Massachusetts. Okay, so I'm I'm Cal, I'm Southern California. Uh huh. So I'm often dealing with people who have never had anybody confront them about it at all ever. Yeah. It's a, it's a culture thing, right? So like Southern California culture, there's there's no like, um, I know you guys think it's wrong. I just feel like they didn't care about me the way they said it, the way they said I was wrong. It's like they hated me for it. Like that's usually it's more like. Um, no one has ever confronted them on these issues or any yeah. sin issues because it's the the message of the gospel becomes like uh, it's love, 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 and that's it. <laughs> come on, believe in Jesus. Come to come to youth group. Love, love. You're a Christian, and there's there's yeah. no confrontation of sin of any kind. So like that that tends to be my I'm reacting to that saying like well, I just want to make sure I don't lose the baby with the bathwater. The baby is repent. The bathwater is yeah. Um, I look down on you. I despise you. I, I think of you as less of a person. It's like, no, no, we're all, we're all people who need to turn from our sin and trust in Christ. Yeah, we're, we're all just horribly lost in sin. That's, I mean, we, it, yeah. homosexuality gets made into a bigger deal than other sin. And it's, it's a big deal, but so is our other sin. So is, I mean, it's, you know, divorce is, is a horrible sin. And uh, we, we don't talk about that enough, but you yeah. know, my lying is a horrible sin. Uh, we, we don't. Yeah. I do. I have a whole thing on divorce. Three hour study on it. Oh, really? Is this where I can be? Uh, I can be open and tell you, Mike. I haven't really watched many many oh, videos. Uh, I, I will now, but yeah, I, I don't think you need to. I'm just yeah, I'm just happy that anybody sees them. But but no, I have a, like a three hour video on the topic of divorce and remarriage, trying to get into a detail. Um, I'm going to be doing a, a study sometime soon. I well, I say soon. Soon for me might be months out. But on the issue of gluttony, I feel like we don't talk about that enough, and we should. But the yeah. answer is the church has to actually hold our ground and call it sin with clarity hmm. instead of apologizing for calling it sin. We can apologize for doing it without the love of Christ, but we can't apologize for it being a sin. That's the thing we, I can't apologize for. Plus, yes. I like I just push you off the cliff. I just push you right off the cliff because there's these are things that God wants to deal with in your life. And I'm telling you, keep doing it. You're fine. And I'm like the Jezebel in, in Rome, uh, Revelation who who uh, tells the people of God to go ahead and, and engage in sexual immorality. So it's, you know, I, I at some point, Christianity has to confront the culture and say, I know you're angry, but it's because you're so wrong. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and I don't yeah. know how to avoid that. In a loving way. I mean, oh, we're, it's, it's, I mean that's, that's, the hard, that's the hard thing to portray is the reason, the reason I'm, I'm even talking to somebody about their sin is because I love you. You know, it's, yeah. it's, this, uh, yeah. I'm not. I don't. I don't love having these uncomfortable these uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. But you know, sin is deadly. This is life and death stuff we're talking about here. That's why I'm doing this. It's really not comfortable at all. Right. Um. Funny little side story, Mike. I was watching that video you made about divorce and uh, had some friends over, and I was showing them my office, and I had your video up, and I saw him just kind of looking at my computer screen. And I was like. No, don't worry. Everything's okay. <laughs> like, we're fine. <laughs> uh, 
not like not looking for a way out yeah yeah that's funny yeah Uh, that yeah that was a tough 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 topic to get into yeah yeah. uh you want to take the next one from the same user cryostate karsten not yes and then mike are you okay on time i mean yeah i'm okay let's plow through man we'll get them all done sorry i I feel like we're this is going longer than maybe you thought but thank you so much i mean that's all right that's good i'm having a good time with Uh, you guys same here same here um same user yeah cryos dated karsten um how do you see meditation what about mantras so i'm assuming this is usually comes from an eastern religion influence but i don't want to read into that so meditation and mantras what do you think so yeah it kind of depends on what you mean by meditation like to me biblically meditation is like uh the word means like to chew the cud or at least the the etymology of the word it's like when an animal chews cud and then puts it back and brings it back and chews it more Mm -hmm. and the idea is like you're thinking something over so like when a mathematician is working on a hard problem you could call that meditation but in our culture we usually use the term to mean something else and when it comes to eastern from eastern religions it can sometimes mean something else so um let me throw out a few thoughts in case that's the direction it's going is sort of like a mindlessness kind of like um so one of the reasons why this meditation stuff has entered in uh, to christian circles one of the reasons is because there are there is a group who have said like let's go into these eastern religions and let's borrow whatever we can and that's a dangerous thing to do. This is something that's happened. Many people have done this through the years. They're like, oh, the Eastern mystics, like, let's kind of dig in there and let's let's get what we can from their behaviors and Christianize it. Let's kind of try to make it sort of Christian. And this is just a dangerous practice in general because practices lead to beliefs and they come from beliefs. And there's reasons why they're doing what they're doing the way they're doing it and why Christians biblically aren't really doing that. And so you want to try to make sure that your practices are consistent with what we find in scripture. It's like the blueprint God gave us. So let me give you some examples of this. Um, Jesus said, uh, when our, when we pray not to think we'll be heard because of our many words. So some people will say mantras and they think they're going to create something with their, with their words. They're going to say it over and over and over again. They're putting it out to the, to the universe. Or maybe they'll go, oh, Hmm. no, 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 to God. I'm Christianizing it, right? I'm putting it out to God. But they think they'll be heard because they're going to repeat it over and over and over again. And I think that what Jesus is showing us is that that kind of thing annoys God, (laughs) to put it sort of clumsily. (laughs) I think that he doesn't like it when we just say the same thing over and over and over again because we think lots of words, now he'll hear me, instead of thinking God is gracious and loving and patient and he's always listening. Um, That's a danger. Uh, it also is akin to what we would see in the first century with magic spells, where they would use certain phrases and repeat them over and over again to try to create some sort of magical effect. And this is something God doesn't want Christians to be involved in. And Jesus, you know, he comes into that culture and he doesn't teach us to do those things. He had the opportunity to tell us to do that. And he didn't. So I think generally with meditation, uh, I don't know exactly what they mean. Maybe they mean something that I'll consider more innocuous. But if it's borrowing from Eastern mysticism, if it's starting to look like like magic spells, like you're repeating the phrases, if it's the kind of prayer Jesus told us not to do, if it's mindlessness instead of being thoughtful and considering the you know the goodness of God or looking at creation and considering that God made that, then I'm going to be you know wanting to probably move away from it. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, and then last question from the same user is if the Holy Spirit is the true source of wisdom, then what role does the Bible have? 
All right. So th- this is a great question. And, and it, it may what sometimes when you, you hear a question, there's like kind of an assumption that's implied in the question. And the implication is that the Holy Spirit is not using the Bible. Right. Like it's it's either mm. the Holy Spirit or it's the Bible. And I think that that's where we want to stop and rethink that. So Second Timothy 316, it says all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, the phrase in the Greek means God breathed. Right. And the breath of God, the Holy Spirit. So it's from the Holy Spirit and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training and righteousness. So I, I mean, you know, God gave me the spirit. The spirit gave me the Bible. Like, I'm not going to separate the work of the spirit from scripture. The anybody who does, who starts to set the Bible against the spirit, the Holy Spirit is preparing us to be led by our own hearts and not God's heart because God will not contradict himself. That's it. The Bible is what I know God said. What I think the Spirit's telling me is what I think God said. I think it's really smart to take what I think God said and compare it to what I know God said to make sure that I'm not getting off base. So I think the the role of Scripture is a test, a check, to confirm that what I'm getting is from the Spirit. Because there's apparently there's three sources of prophecy or, or inspiration in Scripture. One is God. One is Satan or demonic or whatever, you know, evil spirit sources. And the third is my own heart. Now, this always got me when I first noticed it. It blew me away. In Jeremiah, the false prophets of Jeremiah's time, God says that they were getting uh, divination and prophecy from their own hearts, from their own minds. Now, that doesn't mean they knew it was from their own minds. Like they thought they were bringing the word of God to people, but it was coming from their own desires. So they would say like, oh, Jerusalem won't be destroyed. Nothing bad will happen to us. God will protect us. And they felt like this is what God's saying. But they were wrong because they were mistaking their own desires for what God was saying. And knowing that's a possibility, and the Bible's what I know God said. Yeah, the Bible's actually key in discerning whether what I'm hearing is from the Spirit or not. And that's a great question. We have users all the time asking or saying like, well, I don't really need the Bible. I have Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. See, if, if someone's led by the Spirit, they would never mm-hmm. say that. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. I always That's... think, how many times did Jesus quote the Bible? It was important yeah. to him. <laughs> it yeah. should be important to us. That's right. That's right. Uh, next question. Um, this is from Glass Awareness 4170. Uh, is omnism accepted? And we had to look yeah. this one up. So I've been. <laughs> yeah. Omnism it kind of goes a... along to the. Yeah, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, it's kind of a loosey-goosey idea. I'm not really entirely clear on what people mean by omnism, but omni means all, and you combine that with an ism. So ism is belief, so all beliefs. And it's the idea, like the definition you guys sent me is the recognition and respect of all religion or lack thereof. Those who hold this belief are called omnists from another question. Um, Oh, yeah, I had some other stuff there too. But um, the the idea of omnism... um, is I think really likable, like it's very peacemaking. Because you walk into a whole room of people and I remember hearing a conversation where two people were disagreeing and a third person came up and was like, I think you're both right. And I thought, that's cute, except it's not possible, right? Like they're they're disagreeing in a fundamental way in which they both couldn't be right. Because if he's right- Unless, yeah. or unless all they were arguing about was who had the bigger ego, so. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if it stopped that argument, then you know that that's all they're arguing about. Sorry, <laughs> but but there's some situations where it's like we can't both be right, right? So like if if I say I have like um, I'm married, and then you say you're not married, 
um, to, about me. And I'm like, well, yeah. we can't both be right. Like, I'm not married and not married. Like, I'm either yeah. married or I'm not. Like, it might be cute to say, oh, you're both right. Look, you don't have to fight anymore. Let's all let's all have lunch. <laughs> but but it's not realistic. And so that's what omnism strikes me as. Omnism suggests that all religions are superficially different. I think, but they're fundamentally the same. That somehow, like at the core, when you sift down through all the beliefs, they're basically the same. And this is a super popular like belief amongst people who know very little about religions. Uh, they tend to know very little about them, so they assume they're all basically the same. Um, but in reality, when you actually study religions, do comparative religion studies, religions are superficially the same and fundamentally different. They're different at fundamental levels, like the nature of reality, who God is, the purpose of existence, what's wrong with the world, how you're going to fix it, um, what God has or hasn't said, what he wants from us, what he doesn't want us to do, things that are right, things that are wrong. Those are pretty significant differences. Uh, like, for instance, with, um, say, Islam, if you want to say Islam and Christianity are both are both right, like, well, Islam and Christianity are fundamentally opposed in that Islam is one of the most central tenets of Islam is that God has no son. And he's never begotten anyone. There is no begotten of God. So Jesus is not the son of God. And they teach he did not die on the cross. God tricked people into thinking Jesus died on the cross, but he never did. That's a fundamental teaching in Islam. This is like foundational. It's considered a mm -hmm. grievous sin to say that Jesus is the son of God and that he was crucified. Hmm. But that's central to Christianity is that, I mean, Jesus is like core. You, if you yeah. don't believe in Jesus, you're not Christian. Christ you're right, Christian. And so like these two can't possibly be the same. Now they might both agree that you should be nice to your mom, but that's not significant here to the religion. That's isn't, this isn't significant to the nature of the religion. So um, like there are, there's other times though where people think like, um, I, I, I think karma, I can borrow from karma. I can borrow from like Buddhism's idea of selflessness. Those things seem good. You know, I think karma is real. Like you kind of get what you deserve. And I'll be like, wait a minute, that's not karma. That's reaping what you sow. That's a biblical principle. Karma is a belief that your current sufferings are, are the result of past lives where you sinned and you carried your sin debt, your karmic debt forward. So like you were born crippled because you were a bad person in the last life. Okay, well, that's, well, that's not what I, but people think they believe in karma because they don't know what karma even is because they have like this much knowledge of other religions or they think Buddhism, the selflessness in Buddhism is really beautiful. I like that. I think Christianity teaches the same thing. I'll be like, well, no, actually it doesn't. Christianity teaches selflessness. Buddhism teaches you don't exist. There is no self. These are very different teachings. <laughs> Offer yourself, give of yourself, think of others better than yourself. These are Christian teachings. Buddhism, you don't exist, I don't exist, and the goal is to stop thinking you do. And wait a minute, that sounds like destructive to relationships if you actually play it out in real life. It's a it's it's, it's denial of reality. So um, the Israelites fell to this, like the, this, it was called syn syncretism, like the idea that I'm just going to kind of bring together a bunch of different religions. Mm -hmm. There's actually tons of rebuke in the Old Testament for the Israelites when they tried to like sort of merge with other religions. And God's like, no, 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 no. I don't want you doing this. I'm teaching you the truth and I don't want you merging. I don't want you joining. But we've actually got historical records. We've actually found a uh, an inscription uh, in an ancient synagogue in Israel that says like to Yahweh and his Asherah. And they took these, the Asherah was this female deity in the old Testament that, uh, that pagan religion, pagan, pagans around Israel believed in. And they apparently would take these Asherah poles. We read about this in the old Testament and they put them like in the religious worship of Israel. And so at one point, the synagogue is suggesting that Yahweh and Asherah 
can join. They can be connected. Yahweh and then Asherah is like the queen. She's like the queen of heaven kind of figure. And, um, and well, we all know how God felt about that. Like, this is not acceptable. This is wrong. These are lies mixing with truth. So I get the impulse for omnism because it's like, I want to get along. I want to be able to affirm what's true in other religions. I want to do that too. But I don't want to pretend things are true that aren't true. That's delusion. And this will hurt people yeah. because these truths do matter. So like I can affirm uh, like kindness and love are values that many other religions would agree with that. But that's mm-hmm. not what makes those religions those religions. It's the very core nature of the things that we have to say, yeah, they're just not true. All right. Awesome. Next up from user PRVN13P uh, wants to know, what happens to the people who have never heard of the gospel? Yes. I actually uh, struggled with this one myself for a while. I did a teaching on it a, a few years back. And so I'll put a link to the video down below for the full teaching on this. I actually surveyed through scriptures to try to support each point where I talk about it. So I'll just summarize a few things. Um, here's principles to have in mind. Uh, nobody's condemned because they're ignorant of the gospel. Like they've never heard the name of Jesus. Now they're condemned. That, that never happens. That's not a biblical idea. They're only judged for what they do know. God judges us based on what we do know. Jesus even talks about this, that being judged according to our knowledge, the judgment for his generation was greater because they had seen him and experienced his miracles. So it was a bigger deal. But they do know stuff. Everybody does know stuff. So they know that God exists. They know that sin is real and they've sinned against God. Okay, this is stuff everyone knows. I, I say no loosely here because it's, it's stuff everybody is accountable for knowing. That, that's the real term I should use here. Like creation makes it obvious to us, but I can choose to reject that knowledge of God. And so I may not retain it. I may not currently be like, I don't think like atheists, like they really know God exists. Like they're just lying when they say they're atheists. Like I'm not saying that, Um, but there's accountability. They should know God exists. And then how they respond to this knowledge is something that they are going to be judged for when they stand before God. So I also know God wants people to be saved and people can respond to general revelation. And I also know that biblically God responds to people who are seeking him. So if someone reaches out to God, like, oh, like, I know there's a God. I know I've got sin issues, like help. And they don't know anything about Jesus. I think there's a chance God reveals more to them and they get, and they actually end up being saved. And we have Old Testament examples of this, like guys like uh, Nathan in first Kings five, he comes to Israel. He does not become a Jew, but he, he, he sees that, that the God of Israel is true. And so he rejects all the pagan gods and decides he's going to only worship Yahweh, but he's not even becoming Jewish. He's not part of the covenant, but it seems as though he's saved. And um, there's other examples of this, you know, where they have, I'll I'll use the term, they have partial faith or partial knowledge. They have actual faith, but it's faith with partial knowledge. Like they know they're they're true God and they're trusting in him for grace, but they don't know the whole, the details about Jesus. And um, I get into some more detail in my longer study, but basically when Jesus shows up, he reveals that how people responded to the the things already revealed is how they'll respond when they get more information about Jesus. Uh, in John, he's like, hey, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. If you believe the revelation you already given, you would have believed me. So those people like Naaman, who didn't know about Jesus, when they encounter Christ later, they're already trusting in him. They just didn't know his name. They didn't know the details. And so Jesus is the only way to salvation. But for those who've never heard, they're only judged based on their response to what they did hear. And there's a chance that yeah, there's a chance to be saved. Sadly, it seems like humans generally don't take that route, right? They tend to not turn to the God that uh, is revealed in creation. What do you guys think of that? I mean, that's been one of the 
toughest questions I've had to answer as a Christian. And for the longest time, I didn't know what to say. And I wanted to just say, oh, yeah, well, of course. Like, they didn't have a chance. So they're, as long as they were good people. Because, you know, you, oh, yeah. you want to just say something that feels really nice in a conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's something that I, I think I agree with you on almost all points on. Um, I remember I, I watched the video and it, it's been a little while. I, I think there was like one point where I was like, I don't know about that. I have to go look it up. And then I just probably never did. Um, but that's, it's a really tough question and it's to not have an answer to that when somebody asks it, I, it makes me feel, it made me feel really silly. And I, I sought after answers for that for a long time, but I, I think that the Bible proves itself that people are uh, the, what Jesus said, where that generation is, you know, basically now, you know, like you guys are on the hook more than other people who, you know, didn't have me with you. Mm-hmm. I think that to me was one of the arguments that was the most convincing that yes, people like the God is revealed to people through all sorts of different ways. And we are, you know, if you have never heard the name Jesus Christ spoken in your life, um, you've still been given parts of who God is and how do you act in accordance to that? That's important. Yeah. Yeah. I think the bigger question there we should be asking is why aren't we as the church doing more to make his name known? Because if, if there were an out because you never heard the name of Jesus, I mean, why, why did Paul do what he did and try to spread the gospel like he did? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's the exact opposite of what he should be doing. I mean, if, if, if there was a way for people to be saved because they never heard the name of Jesus, we, we should not be spreading the gospel. But that's exactly what happened with the gospel after Jesus died was it spread like crazy. Yeah. Um, well, and, and I would say there's a, there's a nuance here that I'd like to add for just to make sure that my point, I'm not getting misunderstood, is that um, <clacht> saying that there's a way for people to be saved if they haven't heard Jesus, uh, to be careful here and say, it's Jesus. He's the way. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Can you access yes. Jesus by responding to partial revelation properly? And the answer I would say is yes, you can. But that doesn't mean it's an automatic pass. I never heard the gospel. I'm saved. That's not the answer I'm giving actually at all. I'm saying there's mm-hmm. a potential, but it seems that people generally speaking end up rejecting and when the light of the gospel goes out, that's more light, that's more knowledge, and it's more opportunity for them to receive. So it does increase the number of people who end up being saved. Um, yeah. And that people worshiping yeah. false gods is evidence that they've rejected the revelation of God. So that's a that's a condemning thing. Yeah. So this this is where I get into my I'm a bit twisted and at times I, I want these kind of things to bother people. You know, yeah. I, I want um, these kind of questions to just really eat at people and, and realize that this is Again, I said it before, life and death. This is important stuff we're, we're talking about dealing with here. And if, if, if you're bothered by this question, if, if, you, if you're not sure what you've heard about Jesus and you need to, um, you know, it's, it's, it's eating at you, good. Um, it's time to figure that out. Find somebody you can talk to about this and, and get to the bottom of it. It's important stuff. Right on. Me next? Yep. Do we want to keep going? Yep, let's plow through them. Unless, I mean, all right, if you guys user, are still down. All right, user uh, NPC, non-player character 5702, 
What is the correct biblical view of causality when it appears as though human effort and pragmatic considerations appear to be the deciding factor of success or failure? In the Old Testament, the ancients postulated that the outcome of wars were determined by their god or gods. This view of causality is replete in the Old Testament, but I often wonder how much of this had to do with pragmatic factors such as geography, resource allocation, government, numbers of preparation, etc., versus divine favor. Particularly, fast forward here to the Crusades, the Knights Templar, particularly in the Crusades, the Knights Templar were full of faith and charged into battle while being highly outnumbered and were summarily exterminated on more than one occasion. They ignored pragmatic considerations such as strategy and tactics, believing that God would grant them the victory, which didn't happen. The Muslim leader, and here's where I'm going to mess up some names, but Salah al-Din was more pragmatic and focused more on preparation, strategy, tactics, supply lines, and diplomacy. He was even rebuffed by the Islamic clergy for not having enough faith in Allah because of his pragmatic methods. Ultimately, he captured Jerusalem. So far, my search has led me to this conclusion. David had faith that he could kill Goliath. He prepared wisely by assessing his abilities as a slinger. I don't know if that's a Bible term or not. And adjusted his tactics by refusing heavy armor and choosing the right ammunition for his sling. Ultimately, his faith, abilities, preparation, and tactics aligned with God's will. And so he was granted a victory by slaying Goliath. I'm going to answer my own question there, but would be interested to hear your take on it. Thanks. All right. <laughs> Long question. I, I'm going to suggest that this is another situation where uh, an either or scenario is being kind of assumed in the question. Is it God's will and favor or is it me and my ability and commitment to like intelligent tactics and strategies and stuff? And I don't know why we would think this has to be just either or um, because they can all take place. Like, for instance, uh, I won a war. Was it was it my good planning or was it also that I got lucky with good weather that day and it didn't rain and, and ruin our, our, our troops trying to march up the hill to get to the bad guys, right? And and you're like, well, I mean, it would be both. Like you had good planning and you had good weather, which you couldn't control. Okay, so there's, 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 there's factors we can control and there's factors we can't control, which God can control. And so it's not either or. God isn't in the Bible. He's not just the miracle worker, although he is a miracle worker. He does miracles. He also is the one who set up the natural order in the first place. And in that, he gets credit that none of us can take. So I used my mind. Okay, but who gave me the mind? I used my natural abilities. Okay, but where'd you get those? Like, did you fabricate those out of nothing? Well, no, I was just kind of born with that. Like what? Well, the, God provided that for you, you know? Um, there's all kinds of things you have that you're not really responsible for having, but you're responsible for using well. So you could kind of say, I have a responsibility, thoughtful strategies and, and, and doing things smart. And God also has the ultimate sovereignty and he orchestrates things. And there's all million things I can't control. And so even those who did amazingly well in things would understand that there was stuff that just happened to go right, you know, and it just happened to work out. And they know that they weren't really in charge of all that. So the example you actually gave from the Crusades in this question is uh, is pretty good. It's a pretty good example of like what Jesus said not to do. Like they run into war and they don't have any preparations and they also don't have a command from God. They think the command they've got from from the Pope is from God, okay, or from the king or whatever, uh, which is not the case. But they don't have a command from God. So they're not obeying anything. This is This is not faith in something God said. This is just, I just believe God will do what I want him to do. When I go into this crazy thing unprepared. So Jesus said, don't tempt the Lord. Remember when Satan's like, jump off, jump off this building and, you know, his angels will, he'll command his angels, you know, concerning you. 
you won't dash your foot against a stone. He goes, don't tempt God. What does that mean? It's like, look, you don't really have a command to do this. Don't ask for a lesson <laughs> in humility here and presumption. And I think that that's a good example of that. Uh, Jesus also said like, you know, what, what person going to build a structure um, won't first sit down and see if he has the resources to build the whole thing. He's obviously wants us to think. Uh, Paul the Apostle, when he does outreach in the book of Acts, he doesn't do this kind of blind faith thing. He's strategic. Wherever he, if you see this, wherever he goes, he goes to the synagogues and he debates there and he preaches the, the gospel. Why? Because he's a visiting rabbi and he'll he'll be given a pulpit in the synagogues as an as a normal procedure. I wouldn't get that. Paul would, so he uses it. Then he goes to Athens, and there in Athens, he's very strategic. He quotes their their um, their poets. He everything he does is very thoughtful and strategic. He appeals to Caesar because it's a strategic move that he thoughtfully understands will keep him from getting assassinated by these Jews. Um, you know, everything's very thoughtful and strategic there. So God's sovereign. Uh, but man makes real choices and they impact reality and we're accountable for those choices. And the way I look at it as this is you can't control God's sovereignty and his choices, but you can control yours. This is where your responsibility lies. Did you, I, I mean, it's cute, but the phrase, do your best, pray it's blessed. Jesus takes care of the rest. Like that's actually pretty good advice. It's actually pretty good advice. Um, doesn't mean I'll always have success, but it means I was faithful. I did my best. And then I can commit to the Lord whatever happens after that. Well, committing it to the Lord, that's the important part. I mean, we always measure success on, you know, did we win the battle? Yeah. yeah you yeah. know, and I, I, I wish we hadn't, you know, used the example here of the, of the Crusades. There's plenty of stories in the Bible. I mean, because we, you know, we're moderators of, of, of the Bible, so I read it, okay? So I'm always challenging the users to give your, give your answers and your responses on the Bible. So, you know, let's not bring in what Mike Wiener says. Let's say what the Bible says. And... Um, there's plenty of biblical stories where, you know, the, the Battle of Jericho. I mean, what what credit can can Joshua take in that? Other than he yeah. followed the Lord, okay? Mm-hmm. There, the preparation and everything. I mean, sorry, you you can't defeat a well fortified city by playing the trumpet. It just doesn't yeah. work that way. That's the whole point. Yeah, is this doesn't work. Yeah. And there, they have a clear command from God. Yeah. What some people do is they go, I'm going to do something foolish and God will protect me. And that would be tempting the Lord because there's no clear command from God like with the Crusades. Yeah. yeah. Reminds me of the early days of the Assemblies of God Church where they – it was very much like, well, you know, the rapture is imminent. So we have, you know, five years, ten years. And they sent out um, missionaries. And they didn't train these missionaries. They didn't learn the language of the place they were going. They just, when I get there, God will provide. And then they showed up, and they could not speak the languages. And right. it was, yeah. Mm. And they didn't do the work. They didn't put in, you know, what they needed to do. If they had looked to Paul, for an example, then they would have found somebody who, you know. Mm-hmm. But they, they look at First Peter, or not First Peter. They look at Acts, at Peter standing and, you know, speaking in others' tongues and, people understanding him and they're like, that's meant for me now. Yeah. And, and I mean, I like that account of Peter, but I mean, yeah, he, he'd also just spent three years with Jesus and <laughs> had walked and, you know, seen quite a bit of what was going on. And, yeah. you know, he's got some days later just denied later. him. <laughs> well, 50 days later denied him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. The, the, the example of the, of the, they didn't even plan that. No. Like Peter didn't go out into a crowd. He didn't travel to a foreign land where he didn't know the language and think, God will fix it for me. I'll just do things. And because I'm doing it for him, he'll make it work. 
Instead, this was like God's unexpected plan the whole time. And so I, I say, hey, if God unexpectedly does that, great, but don't yeah. try to force it. But I still whatever see, you can do, and when God shows up, let him work. Yeah. I, I do still see some um, – I see a lot of people who are scared to act because they're, they're just – they're fearful that it's, it's not right. And, and a lot of times I give the advice that go ahead and do it. It, it might not succeed, succeed the way you think it's going to succeed, but something's going to happen. You're going to learn something. God's going to do something with it. Now, that, that can be foolish. You know, I'm not saying walk into Jerusalem and take it over, but – yeah. You know, ask what the risk are, is first. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to pick up the hitchhiker who needs a ride in the rain? And go for it. All right. Um, so our next question comes from Carolina X Rose. And they say, hi, Mike. Question regarding the Lord's Supper. I was discussing Lord's Supper with a Catholic friend following Easter and hadn't realized how differently we viewed it. Protestants believe communion is symbolic, while Catholics believe Christ is physically and spiritually present in the Eucharist. My understanding is that this stems from a disagreement about whether Jesus was speaking literally or metaphorically at the Last Supper. Jesus used a lot of metaphors, but his comparison of bread to his body and wine to his blood was immediately followed by prayer and participation in the act described in that metaphor. I know that when Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches, he didn't subsequently go literally prune a tree. And when he said he was the light of the world, he didn't invite everyone into the dark room with and light a candle. So this made me curious, besides the Lord's Supper, were any of Jesus' other metaphors immediately followed by the physical representation and participation of those metaphors? Thank you so much. I'm trying to think about the metaphors followed by physical... I don't know if we could say there's a parallel there, but but let me explain a couple things that might help us answer why I don't think that this is uh, literal, um, mm-hmm. that the, that the initial Passover was, was not meant to be understood by Jesus or the disciples as a literal transformation of the bread into the body of Christ physically and the, and the wine into the blood of Christ, at least the um, substance versus the accident. If you want to borrow from Catholic philosophy and understanding of, of metaphysics and stuff. So, um, all right, here's some things. Uh, this re- this what, what this does, I think we come to the passage with the debate in our head that is this the physical body and blood of Christ? And when we come with that, especially if you come from a Roman Catholic perspective, you're, you're coming with the teaching you've received and you've been told over and over again, this is my body means physically this has actually become. In fact, they're words of invocation in Roman Catholicism. When they say these phrases, the, the, the bread literally physically transforms into the body of Christ. And um, this is anachronism. I'm bringing a doctrine with me into the text. The question I should have is, what does it look like in a first century Jewish context? Not what does it look like in the middle of the 1500s in the Reformation? So when I look at it like that, I see something really interesting. In the Jewish, not the Renaissance European context, but in the Jewish context, Passover itself is a special meal that already has a ton of significance and it's all symbolic. So it was called Passover because it was about that symbolized the angel passing over so they would escape from judgment. They would eat unleavened bread because that symbolized the haste with which the the Israelites had to flee Egypt. They had to leave in haste um, and they didn't have time to leaven the bread. And the bitter herbs, they would eat bitter herbs at the meal too. And that represented the bitterness, the taste of the bitter herbs, the bitterness of bondage that they experienced under the Egyptians to remember what God had brought them out of. The lamb represented a sacrificial substitute that they weren't like making. There was no actual angel to pass over them year by year. This was just in commemoration 
of a previous suffering lamb. So the Jewish context, I think, means that Jesus is speaking symbolism. He's offering them a new Passover meal, a new meaning to an old Passover meal. The bread is Jesus' body, the wine is his blood. He's giving them a new covenant. He's showing that he's bringing out a new people through his blood. And there's a new commemoration of that, just like Passover was the commemoration of the founding of the nation of Israel. There's no doctrine in Judaism that the lamb offered becomes the literal flesh of lambs from the first Passover. Like there's no doctrine that says this. There's no, there's, there's no transubstantiation in Passover in the Jewish context. So when Jesus says, this is my body, there, it's, it's, in a, it's in a feast that's steeped in symbolism. Symbolism is the context through which he gives it. So here's, here's more, if I can add more to I think this is a pretty strong argument, actually, against the Roman Catholic view here. Um, another thought is, why didn't the disciples put up a fight? Like, why didn't they even ask? Like, hey, you know, Jesus, eating physical flesh is definitely against Torah. Like, are you sure you want me to do this? And you're like, well, they wouldn't do that because they trusted God. Yeah, but look at the same guy, Peter, who's there at the meal. When, when he has the vision, just a vision. It's a vision. It's not even like, like real. Right? He has a vision of the coming down of all these different unclean animals. And God says, kill and eat. And, and Peter says to God, like, no, Lord, <laughs> I've never eaten anything unclean. And yet th this to them would, would at least strike that same kind of note and cause them to probably say, hey, wait, Jesus, what do you mean? This is your body? Like literally? This is your body now literally? So I don't think they're thinking transubstantiation because they didn't put up a fight. They saw it as symbolic because it's connected to a meal full of symbolism. And there, it brings up other problems like consuming Jesus at the Passover before his sacrifice even took place. Like they're consuming the flesh of Christ. He hasn't even been sacrificed yet. So um, I think that, that should answer that question, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Answered about every part of it it could have. All right. <laughs> All right. That's how much you sent it to me ahead of time. I just like methodically tried to go through <laughs> That was the hope, honestly, that you would get yeah. these and you would have enough time to just like really pick oh, yeah. out the meat. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to do. Gotcha. Next one is from mm, in in <laughs> I-N-C-L-I-H. Not sure who the user is and how to pronounce it. Sorry if I did it wrong. Uh, simple question. What's the meaning of Colossians 115, which I'll read? Um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And I have no idea what the backstory is here or if there's some deeper uh, question that needs to be yeah. asked here or context. But No worries. Usually this question is asked in relation to the deity of Christ. And so the phrase image of the inv invisible God, it doesn't seem to mean, and study this in context and the Greek and all that, it doesn't seem to mean uh, image like Adam was made in the image of God. Rather, he's like, he he's... What you see is now God. He's, he's seen. He's the image. You see him of the invisible God. God's invisible, but Jesus is visible. He's God with us. It, it seems to be speaking of the deity of Christ. And then the phrase firstborn of all creation, that's where the real debate tends to come in. Um, here's what it doesn't mean. First one created. It means first one created. First off, firstborn doesn't mean that. It means first born if you want to take it like strictly literal prototokos you know first born born and created are two different things jesus wasn't the first born at all like I mean, he's not the first one born adam wasn't even the first born adam was the first one created but not the first one born i mean that would that would be um uh cain 
right? We're, we're looking at the kids of Adam and Eve. They're the first ones that were born. But that's not what it means. Uh, there's, it has other meanings as well. And when you look it up like in an actual lexicon, like not just Strong's, but like a real lexicon, they're going to give you various meanings. So one of the meanings could be first, first one born in a family. Uh, another one could be uh, someone who has primacy, authority, or special status. And that seems to be the context it's used in Colossians. So the term is rarely used outside the Bible. When we look at prototokos, we're like looking at scripture to try to figure out how they were using it then. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament they have. It uses it a couple times. Let me read to you how firstborn is used in the Old Testament. In Psalm 89, 27, it says, this is about David. I will also make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. So God's going to make David his firstborn. Wait, he's going to make him his firstborn? So this isn't about when David was born. This is a status thing. I'm going to make him the highest of the kings of the earth. David will be like in leader, a leader of the kings. Now, Psalm 89, I think, is actually about Messiah. I think it's actually about Jesus. When you look at it in that context, he's the son of David, the one fulfilling these promises. The firstborn simply means he's the king of kings. That's all it means. It's a status thing. Uh, Exodus 4.22, <clears throat> this is about Israel now. Thus you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, if you take firstborn to be created, then that means Israel is the first nation God made. But wait, Israel was not even remotely the first nation made. So when God says Israel is my firstborn, he refers to status. That's the context of Colossians. That's the context of Prototokos. So Jesus is the firstborn over all creation in the sense of he's in charge. He's the boss. He's not just the first of kings. He's not just the first of nations, the highest. He's the first of everything. But you can go on and, and ask the question, does that mean he's created? If he's the first of creation, does that make him part of creation? But Colossians itself refutes this. Let me just read it in context. Um, for uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So wait, if everything's made by Jesus, then he's not made. That, right and and firstborn is his status as being preeminent or over everything he is it goes on and says he's the head of the body the church he's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead the beginning the firstborn from the dead which again firstborn becomes a status that's it's a status here it's not uh about being created that in everything he might be preeminent for in him all the fullness of god was pleased to dwell so all god's fullness dwells there so colossians 1 15 uh, firstborn hangs people up because we we don't live in a culture that has firstborn status we don't you we don't really use it anymore you're not like the boss of all your siblings because you're the firstborn we don't really have that so we tend to read it as, as though it means something it doesn't hopefully that helps yeah i'm the firstborn of my family and i don't get hardly anything from it <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, not I'm glad you, you understood. Oh, sorry. I was, I was just saying, I'm, I'm glad you understood the deeper meaning there because I just took it at face value. What's the meaning yeah. of it? I don't know. I'll look it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get this question a lot when, on discussions about the, the deity of Christ. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Awesome. Glad you know the backstory. So, our next question will come from Clinky07L. Um, First Samuel 28. What's up with this? I have a million questions about the passage, but could you break it down? Okay, well, that's that gives me a lot of areas to grow to 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 go to. Um, let me just briefly summarize it. Okay, uh, King Saul in First Samuel twenty eight. King Saul is king, 
Now he's kind of like the, the, the lousy king before David shows up. And he's scared because the Philistines are about to attack Israel. They're outnumbered. They're, he's, he's worried, right? Uh, and God will not speak to Saul. Normally God would speak through dreams, the Urim or prophets. These are the terms used. Uh, dreams would be either personally or through other people who are getting dreams from God. The Urim, this is something the high priest had, the Urim and Thummim, and there was somehow, we don't know how they were used, they were somehow used in helping to determine God's will in the context of the tabernacle at the time. Uh, and God won't speak to him that way, and he won't speak through the prophets, God's typical guides for kings. And add to this the complexity that Samuel has just died. Okay, Samuel was like the prophet who anointed Saul and kind of was, he was like a counselor for Saul, telling him what to do, but he wouldn't listen. Saul wouldn't listen. Finally, Samuel died. So Saul, he's like, no one will talk to me. Samuel, if I could just get Samuel, I would know what God wants me to do. And I could, I could have the right plan for defeating the Philistines. So Saul goes to a pagan medium, someone who's like a spiritist who like contacts the dead. And he goes in disguise because he's previously kicked the mediums out of the land. He's removed them from the land. So they find one who's been in hiding. She's like kind of stealthy there. And he goes in disguise to pretend he's not the king. So he can actually consult her without her knowing he's the king. His request is very odd. He's like, get me Samuel. Now think of the irony here. This, this is like a great nutshell for seeing the issues with Saul. He's literally using a means that God condemned to try to contact one of God's actual prophets hmm. to try to get God to speak to him when God clearly does not want to speak to him. He's just all kinds of compromised. Like he's just some people just do weird things spiritually, right? This is like I'm gonna have a I'm gonna try to encounter Jesus by using mushrooms. It's like yeah, yeah that's not gonna work. Right? Like does this just, go back to our omnism question? I guess it does. Yeah, he's doing an <laughs> omnis type thing here. Um, so the woman uh, tries to call up Samuel. Samuel shows up and she sees him. And she we mentioned this earlier. She's like, this is an, a, a a a being, a, an Elohim. A, this amazing spirit being is here that I'm looking at. And then, it, and then Samuel delivers a question, a, a message to, to Saul. Hey, uh, yeah, you're going to die. <laughs> so, so God's not happy with him. It's going to go bad. Um, questions come up from this. One of the questions is, does this mean that mediums are legit? Because this medium actually called up Samuel. Like, what's up with that? Yeah. He actually called him up. It was really Samuel. It, that's how the text seems to read. And I, my answer to this is going to be, well, sort of, sort of. Um, First off, I, I don't think mediums are all scams. Probably a lot of them are scams, and a lot most of what they do is scams. But I do think that they they may be involved with demons, demons who may be impersonating your loved ones, who perhaps know information about your your family history and then tell you things to try to like control you. Um, that may be the case, but I'm not suggesting that they're actually calling up your loved ones because I don't think they have power over the dead. I think. You know, Jesus is the judge of the of the living and the dead, and they don't get delivered into Satan's power when people die. They don't go to get controlled by Satan. That's more Bugs Bunny theology, and um, the devil's in charge of the dead or something. Um, uh, in First Corinthians ten, it says that the people who sacrifice to idols are sacrificing to demons, not God. So there is something going on in these pagan practices spiritually. Now, to support this, let me say this: the woman, the medium, seems shocked when Samuel shows up. She does not expect this. She's like, oh, and she's freaking out. Um, it may be that her normal contact was, I'm just going to hypothesize here. I could be wrong. Possibly, here's one potential explanation. Her normal contact was with some sort of demonic or evil spirit thing that was imitating and impersonating deceased people. And she would be manipulated by them to manipulate others, to lead them astray or whatever. When she does this, God, in order to like sort of 
you ever have your parents catch you in the middle of like you doing something wrong um, in order to like catch Saul in the midst of his rebellion against God, God actually sends Samuel back, raises him up spiritually speaking to speak to Saul. That makes a lot of sense. It would explain her being freaked out. It would also explain the rebuke that comes as a result. And that's how I interpret the passage. Yeah. Um, God interrupting this, this moment of like huge embarrassment, huge embarrassment for Saul pretending he's not king, using a medium that he knows is not allowed according to the law. And then he gets the message of condemnation as a result. I always love the idea of this medium just doing her normal scam thing. And then, oh, he he showed up. I don't yeah. know what to do. This has never happened before. <laughs> yeah, she freaks out. She's like, ah, it work. What am I supposed to do now? Yeah. yeah. Mm, interesting. Cool. Good question, Clinky07. Yes, thanks, Clinky. All right. And it's a good thing, by the way, all of our usernames today have been G-rated, I think. Pretty tame, yeah. huh? That's good. Um, unless, <laughs> unless there's something I've, I've said that I didn't realize I was saying. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, this one's from uh, user Strong Message. Hi, Mike. Do you think Ecclesiastes 3.21 should be used to determine the eschatological, if I said that word right, I always stumble over yeah. it, fate it. of animals? Yeah. If it should, would it be a stretch to believe that God would restore the animal spirit with the rest of creation, Romans 8, 19 through 23, similar to how he will re- resurrect our bodies from the earth? Thank you for sharing your wisdom and knowledge through your videos. Okay, I'm going to say I'm going to give a tentative answer to this question. Uh, it is a challenge, but uh, Ecclesiastes 3.21, I have even used this verse to say, hey, this may indicate the fate of animals, whether they whether – they, not whether we will see animals in uh, eternity, because I think we will, but whether or not they'll be our old pets. Like, will it be that same? You know, will it be my old cat? No, I, I, I have cats. I love cats. Right? I love dogs and cats and fish and everything. Okay. So I'd like to say yes. I want the answer to be yes. But I'm trying to set that aside and go with scripture here. So Ecclesiastes 3.21 says, who knows that the, this is NASB, who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth. There's a little translation question here. Is it who knows if the breath of man goes up and the breath of beast goes down? Or is it who knows that the breath of man goes up and the breath of beast goes down? I'm inclined to think that that translation is correct. I think that's more consistent with what we read in the next verse. I'll read that in a second. If that's the case, uh, Ecclesiastes, it, very consistent with the book itself, is complaining that there's a lot of people who aren't paying attention to the fact that humans have to be accountable to God when they die, unlike animals who simply, they go down and they, what may be implied there, they just stop existing. That man has, not that they don't have a spirit or we don't have a spirit, rather just that they're different kinds of spirits. The animal spirit just ceases to exist and the human spirit goes to face God uh, and be accountable for judgment. Now, if we look at it that way, then the end of verse 22, in, in the very next verse in Ecclesiastes 3, it makes a lot of sense. It says, uh, I'll read the whole verse. I have seen that nothing is better than that a man should be happy with his activities, for that is his lot, for who will bring him to see what will occur after him? The concern in Ecclesiastes is with people who don't look beyond this life. Yeah, you may as well be happy with your lot because I can't get you to pay attention to the fact that you're going to face God when you die. So eat, drink, and be merry because <laughs> you're not going to pay any attention anyways. And and this is part of a, a flow for Ecclesiastes. It kind of discusses life sort of in an, in, an, in an atheistic, to use a modern term, an atheistic lifestyle, 
not necessarily atheistic beliefs, but an atheistic lifestyle, a lifestyle that just lives as if all there is is what's under the sun. That's the phrase we get, under the sun, as if there's nothing beyond the sun, no God who created. Um, then he finally brings you full circle to, but we all will stand before God. Ecclesiastes teaches us that. So I think that, um, I actually think regardless of your translation here, if or that, I think you're getting the idea that animals seem to have a different kind of future. And it, it seems implied that there isn't a, a spirit future for the animal. I, uh, I think that men do, and that's what it's trying to say. Um, the, Ecclesiastes 12, seven says the dust returns to the earth and the spirit will return to God who gave it. Speaking of Genesis, when God breathed the spirit into man, right? We all have breath of life, but he has, man has a different kind of spirit being made in the image of God. So there's not really a lot on this. This is very little to base a doctrine on about the fate of animals. I have to admit that. Um, but it doesn't seem to go, it seems to weigh against and not for the idea of resurrection for animals, as opposed to just animals in heaven which I do think is true, or not, I should say in heaven. I really mean in the new creation, new heavens, when heaven and earth come together. Yeah, animals there, that seems to be the case from many different scriptures. Now in Romans 8, uh, this was the verse they, they mentioned. I'll read it to us. Let's see if it weighs in on it. Uh, the creation waits with eager longing for the sons of, for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation is like waiting for the new heavens and new earth, the, the recreation, the, the fixing of all things. That doesn't mean that animals who died will be resurrected. It'll be the same animal brought back though, right? Like I'm adding a lot. So I'll say this, if God's doing that, he has not made that clear in scripture. If I had to guess, my the implication is he's not doing that. But it's possible because Admittedly, the Ecclesiastes text, the spirit of the animal goes down. I mean, that might yeah. just mean we don't stand, they don't, animals don't get judged as opposed to going up because that's the context of the spirit going up. It could be other things as well. Um, yeah. That's all I got. It's, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I've, um, I have severely offended people by giving my <laughs> unbiblical answers. <laughs> On, on matters about what happens to animals when they die. Yeah. And so I, I'll just state, I'll just, I, I apologize for anybody offended with that, but yeah, it, it's, it's, uh, I'd like to believe that it, animals are in heaven, but I, I don't see a strong, I don't see a strong message there to, to make a pun on this user's name. Um, <laughs> um, I, I do see the importance of, of people in, in, in the Bible. Um, God, God, you know, that's Jesus came, Jesus died for us. Uh, I see that very clear, clearly written. Um, and, and so for that instance, you know, I'm, I'm willing to, I'm willing to die for the people to, to hear about Jesus, the animals. I hope they're there with us. I love my cats too, Mike. And it's a yeah. good thing you pick cats for some reason. Reddit loves cats. I don't oh, know yeah. why, but <laughs> I, I, we, we lost a cat a few years ago. I still, I still miss her. Like I do. Yeah. Like I hurt my heart, man. Big time. Yeah. And I want I want to say but I'm like in my head it's like I try to go, okay, take all those desires and set them aside. Let's just analyze this text. And when I do yeah. that, I go, okay, mm -hmm. it could be true. But I I'll I'll just say this minimally. Don't say Christianity teaches this at least. You could say it's possible God might do it, but but if nothing else, at least leave it just as a question because there's no clear teaching in scripture that this will happen. And I I can be hopeful about it 
and I'd like it very much. <laughs> yeah. And maybe God will surprise yeah. us with that. C.S. Lewis thought th- that this would take place. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Hmm. C.S. Lewis isn't Jesus. Like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, yeah. I respect him. I like him a lot. But but um, sometimes our theology can come out of uh, the things that we feel we need. And perhaps when we're in God's comforts and when we, we're so close to God that he is the light for us and we're, we're so comforted, he's wiped every tear away, perhaps then we'll be at peace with the ones we've lost, even our pets. And maybe that'll be the answer. Yeah. I usually just tell people, I don't know. Yeah, fair enough. You know, that's a good answer sometimes. <laughs> Why don't we have that answer more often? Is I don't know. <laughs> I'll find out with you. I do that at least once every q and I have to tell people, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's way better than just throwing a dart at the wall and I agree. trying to pinhole some answer. Yeah. Uh, we have one more question, Mike. All right, and last one. Thank you so much for you know, taking all this time to answer all these questions. It was longer than we expected, but yeah, marathon, yeah, I think. <laughs> yeah, if this is one long unedited video, just for everybody else to understand, we're, we're about to hit three hours here. That's yeah, just... At least from when we first um, logged in to start sound checking, yeah. Yes. So this one should be fairly easy for you, though, Mike. You've talked about this a lot. Are you familiar with the works of Bart Ehrman or his points of view, and what do you think of them? And this is um, from user Patty Sorty. Patty Sorty. Okay. So, um, Bart Ehrman, uh, super smart guy and a really skilled debater, by the way, that's like a skill. Not everybody can debate. That's a skill. He's really good at it. Um, I, I don't say this to be rude or mean or anything like that, but I think he's very misleading. I, I really believe he's extremely misleading and I'll, I'll try to give you a couple examples. Um, one that seems pretty prominent is he has a book called Misquoting Jesus, where he's going to suggest like you know the story behind who changed the Bible and why. And what you think when you're reading his content is that A, you're getting the whole story. B, scholars all agree with Bart. That's the impression you get because he's not going to highlight when he has a unique view that disagrees with a bunch of other people. He's just going to present it all out there. But also the conclusion, you can you can test how well a scholar is communicating things by asking his audience to summarize what they got out of it and seeing if that's consistent with his views. This is always wrong. This is always the opposite with, with Bart Ehrman's stuff. So in misquoting Jesus, um, I talked to somebody who'd read this book and they thought, yeah, like the Bible's totally been changed. Like it's totally been changed. We have no idea what Jesus really said. But they don't realize that Bart Ehrman, even himself, he thinks that what we have in the pages of our Bible is pretty much the same thing as what was written in almost every in almost every spot. But wait a minute, when you read his work or hear his his debates, you don't think that at all. The impression he gives is that he thinks that it's completely up in the air. We have no idea what was originally written. What I'm suggesting here is Bart plays a special role uh, in in culture. I don't know what to call it, where he says things that give people an impression that is much stronger and more skeptical than is warranted by the actual data. And so, yes, we have many manuscripts with lots of different changes, uh, even evident in some manuscripts. But we also have the work of textual critics to say that we pretty like Bruce, Bruce Metzger is one of the guys who's a textual critic who would very much defend that we have the same Bible that was originally written, same New Testament, the Gospels, all this. We got we got what they gave us. That's what Bruce Metzger would say. Bart Ehrman was a student of Bruce Metzger. He actually wrote, uh, co-wrote, co-authored a book with Bruce Metzger at one point. Um, and in some places, it sounds like he's saying the opposite of Bruce Metzger. We, we have no idea what they originally wrote. And then in other places, 
he's saying that we actually do. And we pretty much wrote just what we have written here in our New Testament. Uh, an example of this is his appendix, the original appendix for Bart's book, Misquoting Jesus, had a question about how, you know, what did the Bible really say originally? And he's like, well, pretty much what it says now. In a later printing, they took that question out of the appendix because it confused readers who read the book and hmm. came to opposite conclusions <laughs> than, than the author. So this kind of thing happens all the time. He has a book about um, early Christianities, about these different versions of Christianity early, in the early church. And the impression in the book is there's all these people fighting for authentic Christianity. Christianity is kind of being invented in the second century. But he doesn't alert the readers that he starts his survey of Christian doctrine a hundred years after Jesus. He's, he's doing a survey of Christian teachings and he ignores the New Testament, our earliest sources on Christian teachings. So it implies there's more diversity and disagreement and there's no, there's no authentic Christianity, but it's just the way he retells the story. He's a scholar who regularly misrepresents things in a way that confuses people and creates false confidence in, in like hyper skepticism. Um, an example of this is another one briefly <laughs> is I have a video teaching on Apollonius of Tiana Apollonius of Tiana this character who supposedly is just like Jesus Bart uses him in as in the foreword of his book how Jesus became God and I go through the real story of Apollonius and how Bart uses it to show you that it's just misleading um, I'm not the only guy uh, William Lane Craig very respected scholar and he should be he actually says there's a good Bart and bad Bart Good Bart is Bart when he's writing scholarly work. Bad Bart is Bart when he's writing popular level work that misrepresents things. And the, if you're interested in more on this, go to The Airman Project, E-H-R-M-A-N, The Airman Project on YouTube. They have a number of legitimate credentialed scholars responding to Bart Ehrman's work in a rather unpopular YouTube channel that I think is actually really good. So, hmm. Well, we did it. I'm done, man. I'm going to bed. <laughs> My did. <laughs> Same. I just read questions off. True. Uh, I mean, that was just awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mike, for, I mean, it's so clear how much work you put into this and how much thought you put into this. And um, it's incredible. The things that, the questions that people have uh, are so, reaching so high sometimes. And, Christ, the Bible, they, they always succeed. What, whatever questions we have, um, they always come to meet us, you know, yeah. exactly where we're at, with what we need to know. And Mike, we super appreciate you fielding all 20 of these questions. Well, like 23 once we <laughs> broke up the, uh, the census one. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, hey, it's amount. honestly, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you guys being there and inviting me to, I'm just, get to do it people even want to hear what i have to say about things um and, and with everybody i'll just say this is like i don't i okay I, I provided answers for all these questions hopefully i also made it clear that i don't expect you to just swallow whatever i say without thinking about it i'm just giving you some things to consider uh the main thing that all three of us agree on is that jesus really is the way the truth and the life and that you can trust in him and god loves you <laughs> and he doesn't want you to yep. turn from the sin that you've committed whatever that is as we all have and to trust in Jesus Christ. And that's that's our greatest hope for you, whether you agree on all the other little details is is totally secondary to that. Um, I do hope that the, the, that work like this kind of, you know, encourages people people's confidence and and gives them information that helps them and gives them just assistance in the stuff that they're going through. But um, but ultimately, uh, 
what what's neat to me is I, as I've like poked at the Bible on my own, you know, with all these kinds of questions is how, how rewarding it has been and how yes. like grounding it's been for my own faith and how it's just encouraged me that that really simple faith I had in God and just trusting his word, that that was right. You know, that, that was right all along. Absolutely. That's yeah. one of the main things I tell my, my middle schoolers is if you trust in the word, you read the word, you'll get it. Like, you're going to have your issues. We all do. But, man, start there, and you're going to have a solid foundation for your faith. You're going to really, you're going to do God's will for your life, and that's going to be incredible. Yeah. yeah. Keep studying at it. It's, it's a never-ending endeavor, and, and that's why we've got this subreddit here to help people to, you know, ask questions. We try to, you know, um, Frail Rain and myself here, we just moderate it, but yep. we have a lot of we have a lot of good people in there who provide good, sound answers. We have a lot of crazy answers at times, so... I understand that, but we, we try to keep any and every question up as long as it's on the Bible um, and, and leave it there. Even if, even if the question you know, has the, um, the, the undertone of, of trying to undermine the faith, we leave it there because we want to see it answered from Scripture to, to give a, a good, sound answer. Because we know that it's, it's, you know, this, we're, we're three guys who agree on, on who Jesus is, but mm-hmm. that's not the majority of who we deal with in the world, and we need to be prepared to how to answer it. Thanks, yeah. Mike. Awesome. Good time. Yep. Thanks, guys. Thanks for hanging out with me and uh, and giving me all these hard questions to work on. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. <laughs>